see this woman lying there with her head towards the aisle and her feet towards the window, and a baby was coming out. I don't think many ED docs really have a firm algorithm in their head on how to handle this. She was found by her family in her bedroom with a ton of blood around her. There was no active bleeding, and there was a pressure dressing applied by EMS. Are you guys ready? Have you recovered from the last one? The orthopedist said I should be able to walk again in about another four weeks. In August, a white moon glides through the night sky saying, take heart and live. Tonight I've been straying where glaciers give new life to rivers, playing on silver gleams. That's it. Hey, you didn't have August in the poem. Well, the poem's called In August, so deal with it. Okay, never mind. Hey, everyone out there in MRAP land, it is time for the August 2022 Emergency Medicine Reviews and Perspectives. This is Swami, and I'm here, as always, with Jan Schoenberger. Jan, it's a great month in August, great time to be here, great time to be talking emergency medicine. Yeah, it sure is, and, you know, I'll be honest, August is not one of my favorite months, and you know why? Is, is it too hot? It is hot, that's true, and that's part of it. But the other part of it is that I think I have sort of PTSD from being a kid when all of those back-to-school ads started showing in August, and I would just get this dread that summer was almost over and we had to go back to school. And so I've always had this negative feeling about August. Back-to-school time at Staples. I'm going to have to give you the nerdy reveal, Jan. Not that anyone out there thought that I wasn't totally nerdy. I loved those ads (laughs) because it meant that I could go back-to-school shopping. And I'm not talking about clothes, Jan. I loved getting binders and pens and folders. I loved the process. I still know exactly where I used to go to get all the stuff. It was one of my favorite things. We don't do that anymore. Everything's shopping online. But I remember doing that, and it warms my heart thinking about it. Nerds. Okay, I did like the school supplies. It's true. I, <laughs> I agree with you. A new pen, a new binder, a new folder. That part was kind of exciting, but... Ugh, back to school season. Now people do year round. They don't even. A lot of kids don't even have a back to school season. They do year round. Yeah, yeah. There's gonna be a lot of people out there saying, "What August? My kids are already in school. My kids started back to school like right after Fourth of July." So, uh, yes, I, I get it. Uh, it wasn't that I was so much looking forward to school as much as I was looking forward to the new pens, Jan. That that is the honest truth. I am though looking forward to the case this month. So let's dive into some actual emergency medicine. Let's talk about the case. The case. Okay, let's do it. So. For you, I have a 23-year-old male. This gentleman has a history of schizophrenia, and he's brought in by paramedics off the street for bizarre behavior, a very unusual presentation, right? He was at a grocery store talking to himself, doing a little bit of strange wandering. So the customers got a little freaked out. Manager calls the cops. Police responded, put him on an involuntary hold. EMS brings him in. So you take a look at him. He's got no trauma. He's clearly decompensated psychiatrically, responding to internal stimuli, looks a little bit disheveled unorganized thought process, and you take a good head-to-toe, you examine him, and really outside of his psychiatric exam, your physical exam is pretty normal. You don't have any real suspicion of intoxication or drugs in terms of how his pupils look, how his skin feels, his vital signs, and he doesn't look that dehydrated to you. You don't see any trauma, and his vitals, as I mentioned, are normal. So you want to admit him to psych, so you call psych, and they agree with your hold, and they ask you for the screening labs. Dun, dun, dun. Patients amenable to the blood draw, you're not getting any resistance there. So, Swami, what do you want to order for said screening labs? Ugh. I mean, I, I basically don't want anything. I really don't. I mean, this is a 
23-year-old guy who medically we don't have any history. And if you have a, a history with the patient in your EMR, that can be really helpful to say, this patient doesn't have any other comorbid conditions, but there's not much I want. I mean, I guess a glucose because glucose can do weird things. It can make people act strange. So maybe a glucose, obviously those vital signs are really important, but outside of that, I'm not sure that I want much of anything. And again, if you're asking me, can I clear this person? Do I need certain labs to clear them? I don't think so. Totally agree. I think that there are very few labs that you really need. Maybe if it was a female, you'd want a pregnancy test. That might be the one thing. But otherwise, I think that based on your a good exam, there really isn't much utility to screening labs. And we all know this, and it's so frustrating. And I want to just remind people that ASEP does have a clinical policy about this, came out in 2017. It states that you should only order tests based on your clinical suspicion. It's level C evidence. And there are papers in our EMA database and out there that help support that no routine testing approach. And we will put some of those references in the show notes. I actually was searching online and there are a lot of papers that Rick and Jerry and Sanjay and Mike have reviewed over the decades of EMA telling us what we know, that we don't need to get all of this testing done. And it's a lot of money, Jan. It's a cost of the testing. It's also the cost of a nurse having to draw the blood test. It's also a cost of the lab not running important blood work and instead running that blood work. So there's so many different costs that are caught up in getting all this stuff. And I think a lot of people that have EMRs, they have a little button that says psych screening and you click that and it gives you all the labs that you have to get, not that you have to get them, but that you have to get in your institution to get psyched to see the patient. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, part of the system in many places. And so the reality is most of us do this because we want to move them to the next step. And so until you fight that battle on the hill at your shop, this is going to be what you do. So, you know, we order the basic labs, the the panel, as you suggested, a CBC, chemistry, blah, blah, blah. And in this case, a CK, a creatinine kinase was also added on. Now, not for any particular reason. I think it was just because that clinician decided to add it on. And because, you know, it was unknown what he was up to prior to presentation, and that was kind of the reasoning. And so I want to ask you, Swami, would you have ordered a CK on this patient? I don't think so. There's nothing that you're giving me from the patient's history or the exam that makes me think, could this patient have a, a compartment syndrome that I'm not seeing? Were they down for a while and they had some real muscle breakdown? Or is there a stimulant on board that's causing muscle breakdown? None of the things that you're giving me speak to that. So I don't think I would have gotten a CK. And I understand that there are some of those labs that you just kind of have to obtain. The Utox is the other one that comes up over and over again. I got to get a Utox, which really doesn't have any relevance to making the patient cleared or not cleared for psychiatric assessment. We, we talked about that at length back in November with Jeff LaPointe. People can listen to that. But I don't think that I would have added a CK. And I'm not sure that I've ever really added a CK as part of a screening lab. I agree. And so in the end, these labs come back normal, except the CK is slightly elevated at 1700, which is, you know, it's not, it's above the upper limit of normal, which is a thousand. But now the psych unit is refusing to take this patient because he quote unquote has rhabdo and they want the patient admitted to the medical floor. So what's your take on that? You can't define rhabdo by an abnormality of a lab test. That's not really how this works. And that elevation is so mild. It doesn't really make me think that, that that's enough to really signal rhabdomyolysis in, in a young patient. Usually we're seeing CKs well over 10, 15, 20,000 before we even consider it. Obviously we wanna know the creatinine. If the patient has an elevated creatinine, well, I'm worried about that patient then, but that's not what you're telling me. You're just telling me it is one lab that's abnormal that you really didn't want. And it kind of speaks to that, what was your pretest probability for this guy having rhabdo? 
Now you have an abnormal test and what do you do with it? I can't imagine that there is any internist who is saying, oh yeah, that's Rabdo. Go ahead and admit them to my service. Absolutely. They're going to be definitely frustrated with you. And it's a little bit like the old days where we, when we started using lipase and amylase for pancreatitis, and we realized that just because your lipase or your amylase is a little bit up doesn't mean they have pancreatitis. It has to be, you know, a certain multiplication factor of that upper limit. So, you know, in addition to the actual number that you have, you also have to have a good history. And this history isn't consistent with a cause of rhabdo that we really worry about. Remember that there's really three clinical scenarios where rhabdomyolysis occurs. It can be, number one, traumatic or compressive of some type. Number two, it can be non-traumatic but exertional, and it can be non-traumatic and non-exertional. And I think that that traumatic or compressive type is pretty obvious. We're talking about a crush injury is a classic example. That non-traumatic exertional is like the crazy person who does a thousand squats or the person who has you know muscular overactivity and maybe uncontrolled status epilepticus or PCP agitation. And then the non-traumatic, non-exertional type is from toxins like some venoms or infections like a biocytis and maybe some endocrine causes, for example. And this guy, based on your exam, you can rule out pretty much all of those things. So by a good H&P alone, there really isn't any clinical suspicion for rhabdo. And it comes back to that, that point, Jen, the good history and physical. And I think sometimes the fact that you have to get these labs in order to clear them, quote unquote, clear them for psychiatric assessment or placement, it almost makes us not do the good history and physical exam that we should be doing on these patients because they do have risks for, for different disorders. I mean, head trauma, other things that they can be hiding. And so we should be doing a good H&P, but because we have that lab that we have to do, we just get the labs. And sometimes I think we don't do the proper assessment. I think this is one of those places where you did the proper assessment, didn't think you really needed much, and now you're in this trap of, I've got this false positive test, or I've got this slightly elevated test, and now I need to do something with it so I can get the patient taken care of properly. Yeah, absolutely. So there's really kind of two things going on here. As you mentioned, the don't order tests that you don't need, that you don't have a pretest probability for. And then you're going to have to help a specialist who may not be as familiar with this particular test interpret it properly and explain why you got it in the first place, which we shouldn't right, have. Right. So you know, there are systems issues here, but there's also a clinical issue here. And if you'd like a good review of rhabdomyolysis, you know, the diagnoses that go with it, the treatment that goes with it, there's really a great chapter in Corpendium, as well as a good two-part audio review segment that Matt Delaney did for us for MRAP back in March 2018. And ultimately, Jan, I know that this is a really frustrating thing that lots of our listeners run into over and over again, that we run into over and over again. And it needs a solution on an administrative level, not when you're in the trenches, with that patient, you're not going to win that battle. It really needs to be a larger conversation of what should psychiatric clearance really be about? If you're asking my medical expertise to clear this patient medically, then we should be determining what that process is, but you can't have that fight in the moment. That fight really needs to be done on an admin level, and it needs to be a systematic approach for every single patient that comes in. Absolutely. And in terms of the medical issue here, you know, just remember, number one, do tests that you medically suspect that there might be something going on and to not just shotgun tests. This is the kind of thing you can get into when you're stuck with a value you don't want. Number two, rhabdo can certainly happen. We've reviewed the three main types. Remember, though, that the CK that matters really needs to be about five times the upper limit of normal at least. And as often when it's clinically important is more in the range of 20,000, for example. And also, if you do have a CK that maybe is at a worrisome level, the treatment is fluids with a goal of targeting a high urine output to perfuse those kidneys and get that myoglobin out. 
But if it's mildly elevated CK, you can just encourage extra PO fluids. You know, that's okay too. Right. Don't do more harm by thinking that you have to flood the patient because that CK was 1700. It's really not that relevant. And again, for anyone out there who has also felt this burn and really wants to take care of it, lots of links in the show notes to the ASAP policy, as well as the abstracts where we go through the data here, which which really can drive us to do the right thing for the patient. So Jan, it's a great case. It's not one that we typically would do in our intro, but I think it is a really important one for us to hone in on because it is about that pretest probability and doing the right thing for the patient. All right, Jan, let's get into the month and talk about our favorite pieces, the things that our listeners should really look forward to. I really enjoyed talking about ST elevation that's not ACS with Susie Demeester. This is one that comes up all the time when you you see those little elevations, you're like, the patient doesn't have a STEMI. I mean, go look at that patient. That's not a STEMI. But what else can cause those ST elevations? This is a great review. So important. I mean, these EKG readings still, especially for STEMI, you know, like you mentioned, knowing the false causes of ST elevation, so important. This month, my favorite piece was really a combo piece. You know, we had Britt Guest talking about a bleeding AV shunt clinical scenario. And then right after that, we've got Al Sacchetti giving us a new tip on something called the Woggle technique that we're sort of learning from interventional radiology. And this Woggle technique is relevant to bleeding central venous catheters, but also you can use it in dialysis shunts that are bleeding too. That's a very cool one. Al shared this with me. And I think I used it about a week later and everyone was like, what a cool tip. And I really wanted to claim that I had come up with this, but I... (laughs) I just, I just couldn't do it. So I told them, it's an Al Sacchetti. Of course. And then they were like, oh, of course, it's Al. Of course, Al always finds these little techniques that can really improve our care. So thanks, Al, for sharing this. And there are some videos that go along with that piece that are really important. So check that out on the website as well. And Jan, I think now it is time for us to dive into those segments. You and I are going to step aside. We're going to take a little break. We're going to listen to the pieces ourselves. And then we will be back in the mailbag as well as that mega summary at the end. So Jan, I will see you on the other side. All right, it's time for takeoff. It's time again for Scott Weingott. Critical Care Mailbag. Hey, Scott, great to hear your voice. How you doing, man? What's up, Swami man? So good to talk to you. Oh, I can't wait to get into this topic. It is great to talk to you. And, uh, you know, we did a case talking to Jan about a tracheostomy patient who came in with a complication. And I think the case went fine, but I thought this was a great area for us to get into because I don't think we've really talked about this on MRAP or in Critical Care Mailbag. Cool. Yeah, no, it's a perfect topic because this does present to the ED quite frequently. And yet I don't think many ED docs really have a firm algorithm in their head on how to handle this. And that's exactly the problem because I think we get intimidated by the patient with a trach or a trach issue because we don't deal with them very often because we don't have some sort of an algorithm in our head. So let's get into this. And I want to start by kind of touching on what the major complications that we see in the emergency department with these patients are. Yeah. I mean, you break it down into two categories. They come in either with respiratory distress or they come in with bleeding. One thing that comes up in both of these is the maturity of the track. So somebody puts in this trach and there's a certain amount of time after which you say that trach site is mature. If it comes out, you can put it back in. What is that number? When does the track become mature? Yeah, you know, it's probably around a week, seven to 10 days is what we usually say. Maybe a little bit longer if it was placed percutaneously, though most of the time in the ED, you're not going to necessarily know. But for the most part, by the time they've been discharged from the hospital and come back to you, it should be a mature track. But 
don't take that for granted. I always have this like little trepidation in the pit of my stomach anytime I replace a trach, which makes me super careful and meticulous. And sure, if it's a mature track, 99% of the time, you could just chuck it in from across the room and it's going to sink in the right place. But I always asking myself, am I in a false track and making sure that I am not. If the track is immature, for whatever reason, let's say that you're getting this patient four or five days after that trach was placed. Now they're in your emergency department. Does it mean that I can't replace the trach? It doesn't mean that. It means you need to be far more careful. I mean, if a trach fell out the day it was placed, we could still put it back in. Now, it really depends on your level of experience, whether you want to deal with that, if you have someone else who could help. But in many places for MRAP listeners, there's no one else except you. So you're going to be on the hook. What it comes down to is the track may not be matured in that you can't go anywhere else, but there's still a hole there. And the way to play is instead of trying to put the trach back in, which is a big object that likes to go wherever it damn well pleases, you want to put something that is more manipulable, gives you more dexterity, and gives some uh, feedback tactilely. Tactily? Tact- What's the word, Swami? Tacti- I think I'm going to go tactilely. All right. That's wrong, too. Although fair. I'm sure that that is wrong. Yeah, fair enough. We'll <laughs> go with it. Which is a bougie. Or if you have it, uh, a little bit softer is an airway exchange catheter. But either one of those. And the bougie is the one that's going to be predominantly available in any ED. And that, as long as you're incredibly gentle and you just work your way in, you could feel the difference between um, dissecting soft tissue versus, oh, wow, that went in really easily. And you're able to pass the sternal notch. And, you know, you feel pretty good about the bougie. It's it's even nicer when the patient starts coughing because that generally tells you you're in the right place. If you get the bougie in and it's in the right place, then replacing the trach is going to be real easy. You can't go into a false passage anymore as long as you're gentle. If you're having trouble, downsize. I mean, that's always the win is, you know, if they had an 8-0 you took out and you're having trouble getting it in, you put the bougie in and you grab a 6-0 and then someone, you know, more experienced than you could do the upsizing to get it back to its original size. There's no shame in going down. And there's also no shame in using a softer, easier to find object like an endotracheal tube that you could downsize. So if you put in a bougie and it was an 8-0 and you put in a 6-0 trach or a 6-0 ET tube, or it could be like a little bit bigger on the ET tube sizes, you know, a 6.5, a 7, and you have a pain in airway now, it's for someone else's problem to deal with getting it back up to its original size. Gives us a couple of options of things that are going to be readily available in the emergency department, either the bougie, if you have the airway exchange device, great. You can use an ET tube, you can downsize, If you have fiber optics available, what's the role there in that immature or or even in the mature track trach? Yeah, the safest way to both assess patency of an existing trach that you're troubleshooting and to replace one with a immature tract or if you're having any trouble is with a flexible scope. And it doesn't need to be a bronchoscope that many EDs don't have, but many EDs have access to rhino laryngoscopes and those are perfect for this. And once you see tracheal rings or the carina, you know you're in the right place. And if you've preloaded your trach onto that device, you can just railroad it over and know you're in the right place. With all that as background, let's get into some of those complications that we're going to see in the emergency department and how you would address them. Let's start with the respiratory distress. You have a patient who has a trach who comes in with increased work of breathing from whatever facility they're coming from or even coming from home. What is on your differential as the possibilities for that respiratory distress? Well, you want to figure out very quickly, is it a trach issue or the patient's lung issue? Because patients with trachs may have the normal stuff that presents to the ED with hypoxemia and respiratory distress, like a bad pneumonia. So you want to very rapidly figure out which one it is. Now, I'm going to be reading from the Resuscitation Crisis Manual, a book I wrote with Dave Borshoff. And this chapter is by Justin Morgenstern, wonderful dude. 
and I'm going to provide that in the show notes. So that chapter will be there for all of you to see. But I think it's the best extrapolation we've come up with. So step one is to apply 100% oxygen to both the face and the tracheostomy, which essentially means a non-rebreather uh, mask on the face and then like a pediatric oxygen mask on the trach. And this just allows you to pre-oxygenate while you're getting all your equipment and deciding to mess around with the devices. The next step, and this is, uh, you really need to understand the hardware a little bit to understand what I'm talking about, but everyone who's outside of their intern year in emergency medicine is going to get this, is you got to take out the inner cannula and any other attached devices like speech ports and what have you. You just want to have bare trach in there for a sec, but don't throw that inner cannula out because for some of these devices, if you need to provide bag valve mask ventilation through the trach, you can't do it with the inner cannula, which I think is a horrible design flaw. But a lot of times that got clogged up and by taking it out, all of a sudden the patient's able to breathe and everything gets better. Okay, so we start by supplying oxygen to the patient, which gives us some time if we can oxygenate them. And then we remove the inner cannula of that device. We're going to make sure that we save it. We're not going to toss it. What's next? I want to know if it's patent or not. Now, the, the cleanest, smartest way to do that is to just attach end tidal CO2 to the trach if you have it immediately available. And you don't even need a BVM for this. You just take the you know uh, line that's coming out of the monitor with the little adapter port on it and you stick it on the trach and it's just, you know, the other end's just facing the air. It, it doesn't need to be hooked up to anything. And as they exhale, it should register end tidal CO2. That right there tells you there's a patent trach. Now, if you don't have it immediately available, then you can pass a suction catheter. And if the suction catheter passes easily past the point of where you imagine, you know, the sternal notch is internally, then that's also a reasonable indicator. It's not perfect compared to end tidal, but it's a reasonable indicator that there's a patent passage for air to pass through that trach. If you put on that end tidal CO2 or you pass the suction catheter and the suction catheter is successful or you get a good end tidal CO2 waveform, does that mean that the trach is not an issue? It doesn't mean it's not an issue, but it means it is not completely occluded as the issue. And that's really the key because if it is occluded, like, for instance, you try to pass a suction catheter and you can't get it to pass like more than a couple inches or a entitled CO2 doesn't exist, then your next step, as long as this, and you know, we should have said this up front, this is all for tracheostomy emergencies, not laryngectomy emergencies, which is a completely different bag, which maybe we talk about in a different show. But in a laryngectomy, there's no continuity between the patient's lungs and their mouth and nose. So we're dealing with trach patients who have an intact uh, upper airway and therefore all the things I'm going to say next can happen. If you can't pass that suction catheter or you don't get entitled, then the trach's got to come out and then we'll troubleshoot from there. And that's why that's the dividing line is if you can pass the suction catheter or there's entitled, then we could still mess around with the trach a little bit. If you can't pass the suction or there's no entitled, that trach should come out. Now, if the patient's not dying in front of you and the suction catheter can't pass, then you absolutely can because, you know, let's say they're in respiratory stress, but their SATs are still reasonable. You can, you know, manipulate the trach a little bit, see if it was just up against the wall of the trachea and, you know, pull it back a little, see if the suction catheter passes or better yet is to actually get your rhinolaryngoscope and see why the suction catheter is not passing. Is there a big mucus plug, which you'll immediately see, or is it up against the wall? Or you put your rhinoscope in there and you just get into soft tissue red. Uh, well, then, you know, it's got to come out because the reason is it's in a false passage. We got the start of this. We're going to drop a suction catheter or put that end tidal CO2 on to see if the tracheostomy is patent. We could also use our fiber optics to take a look, see if there's some obstruction, either a mucus plug or if we've actually gone into a false passage. Where are you moving next at that point? Okay, well, let's split it up. Let's dichotomize here. So if the upper airway is patent, you know, and the trach is seemingly good, 
then you have to start asking yourself, is this actually a problem with the patient's lungs? So everything looks great. There's end tidal, you pass the suction catheter, and now you say to yourself, well, is there something respiratory going on? If they have a trach without a cuff, you can't provide positive pressure ventilation with it. So at this stage of the game, like we had already mentioned, you should have oxygen on both sites, on the trach and the upper airway. And if you you don't have anything on the upper airway, you can close the nose and the mouth and work it that way, but that's not a good long-term solution. So now you want one of two things to happen because your next step is either non-invasive or invasive ventilation through that trach. Um, and I may guess it's not truly non-invasive. I should say deme- like a patient demand breast versus mandatory breast because <laughs> it's already in there. It's already invasive. The cuff will allow you to isolate and actually provide positive pressure. While you're waiting for that to happen, if you're not in a site that stocks trach equipment, and you should be, you should stock this stuff in the ED, what you can do is you could actually put a non-invasive mask over their face and nose with some peep there and then attach a either BVM or ventilator or non-invasive machine to the trach as well. And then you'll be getting PEEP even though you don't have a cuff trach. But as soon as possible, what you want to do is you want to take out the uncuffed and replace it with a uh, non-fenestrated cuff trach. And then you could just provide them with the normal either pressure support CPAP uh, if you, the patient has good respiratory drive or, or mandatory ventilation. So that's the pathway of you check the trach, there's end title, the suction catheter passes easily, so you're starting to think now it's not a trach issue. It's really important for us to remember that the trach isn't the only problem. As you mentioned up front, these patients can have all of the different things. In fact, they are probably even more likely to have all of the different lung pathologies that can cause respiratory stress, including pneumonia and pulmonary embolism and so many other different things in there. But this tells us what to do next. So if it's patent, then we take that out of play, we look at the lungs, Let's say that it's not patent. Are you going down the same pathway? So you pass a suction catheter, you can't pass it. You don't have fiber optics to know exactly what's going on of why you can't pass it or why you're not getting that end tidal CO2. At that point, if you have a mature trach site, are you pulling that trach and then just replacing it with a cuffed tube? Well, I'm gonna, no, I'm going to pull the trach end regardless of whether it's mature or not if I cannot pass a suction catheter or get end tidal CO2. I don't care about the maturity here because we will troubleshoot from that point. If you can't pass a suction catheter through that trach, then that trach is not helping you get it the hell out of there because it could be blocking the airway, especially if it's a cuff trach. They might have a fully patent upper airway. We've actually reviewed cases where patients have died because the team was too afraid to take out a cuff trach. And if they had just deflated the balloon or taken out the trach, the patient had a perfectly patent upper airway and would have been fine. The patient was still spontaneously breathing right up until the point they died. So don't be scared if the trach is not functional, regardless of the maturity, just get it the hell out of there. Scott, is your basic approach that if you're going to take that trach out, that you're going to have a double setup, you're going to have someone ready to intubate from above as you're removing it, just in case you have any trouble putting a new trach in? Yeah, I mean, you anticipated where I'm going with this is once that trach is out, then you have to ask yourself, should I mess with the trach site or should I actually intubate from above? Now, it's really nice if you know why the hell they had the trach in the first place, because if they were trached for a horrible, difficult airway after some horrible oropharyngeal surgery, then that becomes less desirable, though it's sternly still in our action list. But in most cases, patients are trached because of long-term need for mechanical ventilation. They don't necessarily have a difficult airway. In many cases, intubating from above is going to be more familiar with the average ED doc as opposed to an ENT or the folks who have more experience with surgical issues who might feel more comfortable actually going through the stoma. So there's no shame in intubating these patients from above. And in fact, as you mentioned, having the ability and capability to do both is really optimal, which means if you could get a buddy in the room so that they could set up for intubation and you could actually mess with the trach site at the same time, that's a great way to go. 
if you're alone and you don't have a lot of familiarity, I really think the way to play is prepare to intubate from above. Don't mess with the trach site. At this point, let's say that we're going to pull out that trach. We are going to try to replace the trach or we're going to intubate from above. Can we do anything to provide extra oxygenation while we are working through those procedures? Yeah. So the way to play is you get a, either a pediatric BVM or a uh, adult BVM with a number two LMA, like a small LMA. It doesn't need to be a number two, just something tiny. And those will fit really nicely over the actual stoma site. And then you need someone to hold the nose and mouth closed. Or even better, if you have a second person, having them just hold a BVM over the patient's nose and mouth with a peep valve dialed up to some reasonable amount of peep, they don't need to bag through that. You'll bag at the stoma site, but holding that over their face with a two-hand mask seal will actually give you the capability of having peep while you're pre-oxygenating this patient, while you're waiting for the stuff to come to actually be able to intubate these patients. So you can either close the mouth and nose off and then bag at the stoma site with an LMA or a pediatric mask, or you can actually supply oxygen through both routes. So you can apply a BVM at the mouth and nose with a peep valve on. Could you also occlude the stoma and just bag from above? You absolutely can. You know, I find it a little bit more difficult to occlude. You know, if you can get an airtight seal, which you absolutely can in, in some cases, in some cases you can't, but you'll know, you know, if it's blowing past your hand, then yeah, absolutely. That would be fine too. Whatever it takes to get some degree of gas exchange, and there should be on whichever the device you're ventilating through, there really, really needs to be end-tidal CO2. And as long as you're seeing a waveform return, then you're pre-oxygenating them just fine. Recap. So now I have a little bit of an algorithm in my head, Scott, of what I'm going to do when this patient comes in with respiratory distress. Always keep in the back of my mind that it is not just the trach that could be the issue. They could have some lung pathology that's causing that respiratory distress. But I'm going to take a look at that trach site. I'm going to figure out whether it has become dislodged. If it's in a false track, it has an obstruction. And I can do that by putting on an end tidal CO2. I can do that by dropping a suction catheter. If they're hypoxemic, of course, I want to supply them with supplemental oxygen. I can do that from above. These are tracheostomy patients. They still have a patent upper airway, so I can supply some oxygen from above. We're going to try to supply some oxygen through the stoma as well. If it's obstructed, I need to exchange it. I'm going to pull that out, and then I can, again, pre-oxygenate through the stoma as well as from above. And if I'm not comfortable with tracheostomies, I'm not comfortable with exchanging them or I don't have the equipment, I can always consider intubating them from above, especially if this is something like a trauma patient who had a normal airway, but they needed a trach for long-term ventilation, not because they have some kind of an upper airway abnormality, like a head and neck kind of cancer. We've got a whole second half on this topic, looking at the bleeding trach site, but that was a lot of information already. So we're going to split it right here. We're going to be back with critical care mailbag part two on trach emergencies, dealing with the bleeding trach site. I'm back with Al Sacchetti and Jeff Seiden for another SmackDown. SmackDown. It's time for another SmackDown with Al, Rocky and E.R. Sacchetti, and Jeff Heavyweight Seiden. Now, your MC host, Eileen Claudius. Are you guys ready? Have you recovered from the last one? The orthopedist said I should be able to walk again in about another four weeks. And I'm told there's a fairly high risk that the cut over my eye will open up again. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you guys look as badass as you sounded. I had a great time. And of course, we're back for round two. And this is something that I think is so necessary right now because 
with the decline in your standard winter viruses, I haven't seen the kind of really terrible asthma over the last year and a half that I'm used to seeing. And I feel like I'm a little bit out of shape. We were in the same circumstances. However, we're getting a huge rebound now. We're starting to see a lot of the respiratory infections. And interestingly enough, we're seeing them in adults as well as the kids. We're seeing adults with RSV every day now. And we're seeing our asthma is back with a vengeance. Absolutely. All I can say is after a long hiatus, it's back. Asthma Smackdown, part one. Well, good. So I would like to pick your brain on that. Let me give you a case. The case. Five-year-old comes in, little respiratory virus, has a history of asthma, but did one of those, at least per the parent's report, zero to 60 in a matter of hours, was doing well, and now the kid is gasping, sweating, hypoxemic, can barely breathe. The kid hits your door. What is your first move? Basically, you're opening the kitchen sink for them. They're getting sub-Q epi. They're getting a nebulized treatment of beta agonist, one continuous one or multiple smaller ones back to back to back. Apertropium or atrovent, they're getting steroids, IV, assuming that none of this works real well and they get their magnesium as well. I am not opposed to nebulizing epinephrine. So that's like the entire kitchen sink plus overflow underneath the sink as well. I hate to agree with you this early in the podcast, Al, but I think the idea of really being aggressive up front is appropriate for these sorts of cases. The more you dilly-dally around and try and dance around the issue and put a drop of this and an ounce of this, you end up just prolonging the pain and ultimately potentially leading to worse outcomes. So be aggressive early. For a child that you're describing, Eileen, you know, who's really sounds like probably not moving any air, you have to think about not only what types of medicines you're going to give, but also the route of administration. The idea of nebulized medicines for a patient with a quiet chest seems fairly counterintuitive, and we have to think about other ways to get the medicine into their bodies. What's your next parental move on these guys? We've pretty much maximized what we're giving them a beta agonist, we're giving them an anticholinergic, the steroids probably intravenously, and the IM shot of epinephrine. What else have you got up your sleeve? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't think I would undersell the magnesium. I think magnesium is an excellent agent. I think in pediatrics, we often think of it as a second line agent. But in a case like this, I would add it to that first line series of medications as well. I think moving beyond that from a parenteral standpoint, I completely agree with you up front using the intramuscular epinephrine or terbutaline. I tend to use epinephrine and personally, I tend to use the auto injectors just out of convenience and from a safety perspective. But I think there's still a role for some parenteral terbutaline later on in the course as well. I'm not a fan of infusions of terbutaline. I think the potential adverse effects are not insignificant, and there has not been shown to be enough benefit to take some of those risks. But I think in a pinch, a small bolus doses of terbutaline can actually be fairly effective in temporizing things while you're preparing for some of these other non-pharmacologic support measures. I'm going to interrupt you guys for a minute and get into some details here. So one of the issues for me is that it just seems to take forever to set up a nebulizer, get the albuterol. I don't know where we keep it, but it's not ever anywhere that I need it. And so that's one of the reasons that I love reaching for IM epinephrine and using that instead because it buys me a little time where we're finding the secret cabinet three floors away where we keep the albuterol. Can you guys go over exactly the dose and means of administration for all of these other medications you're talking about? 
So I actually use the exact same doses that you would use for other indications as well. So conveniently, both for terbutaline and for epinephrine, the doses I use for the intramuscular initial dose is 0.01 milligrams per kilogram per dose, both of them up to a maximum dose of 0.4 milligrams. Again, because I tend to use the auto-injectors, my choices usually are the 0.15 or the 0.3. And as is the case with anaphylaxis, I aim higher. If I'm trying to question which dose to give, I just go higher. Where do you draw that line? Yeah, I mean, for me, it would be somewhere between the 15 and 20 kilo child that would just go ahead with the adult dose of, of the EpiPen or the auto injector, I should say. So, you know, somewhere around 15 kilos, I think is a reasonable break point. But again, I try not to rely too much on math in the heat of the moment. So if I have a question, if they're not clearly a very small child, I just go ahead and give the 0.3 milligrams of the auto injector. And same dose for the terbutaline, and you're also giving that IM. Correct. Now, again, terbutaline doesn't come in the auto injector. So that's one of the reasons I prefer the epinephrine. But terbutaline is fairly tried and true. I know many emergency departments utilize that, their first line intramuscular agent. And again, yes, the dose is 0.01 milligrams per kilogram per dose. It usually comes in a one milligram per ml solution. If you prefer to think of it as a volume, it's 0.01 milliliters per kilogram per dose as well. And what about the magnesium? What is the dose that you use? What is the time frame over which you infuse it? And do you worry about hypotension? Do you worry about giving a fluid bolus with it? Typically, again, I try to simplify things. I usually think about 50 milligrams per kilogram, maximum about two grams. There's actually a dose range. However, I think you can go anywhere from 25 to 75 milligrams per kilogram per dose. But again, I choose 50 and I max out at two grams. I usually ask the nurses to give it over the course of 20 minutes. And no, I don't worry at all about hypotension. I mean, I always worry about hypotension, but Certainly not to the point where I'm going to delay administration of this medication in order to give a bolus first. You know, the hypotension that at least theoretically children are at risk for with magnesium is a diastolic hypotension from the smooth muscle relaxation. And you could argue that a fluid bolus really probably won't do much for that anyway. Do you check the pH to see where you're starting? I don't think that the pH is going to help you a whole lot. It's more of a clinical thing. I think people tripping over themselves, you know, they get the pH and then all of a sudden they just start managing the child by repeat VBGs. I'm more inclined to, to say whatever the pH is, it is, I'm going to assume it's not good and just treat the child that way because it's, it's more clinically the management's going to be driven. Wow, Al, I don't know what's happening here. I'm not sure if I'm febrile, but I am starting to agree with you more and more, which is scaring me. We really want to be treating the child. And as we start introducing more objective data, quote unquote, with numbers, I've found that people tend to get caught up in that and forget to actually look at the child and match the therapy with the child's clinical status. So I'm going to jump in the ring here with you guys. I'm going to disagree with you. Now, let's say somebody did check the pH. How hypercarbic is too hypercarbic? Where for a patient that is not yet intubated, do you let them ride before you think, okay, wait a second, I need to change this up? You're trying to bait us. I know that because I, I know you too well. The problem would be if they're getting hypercarbic, there's going to be clinical findings that are going to let you know that before you have to go to the, the BBG to figure it out. This child's going to be getting lethargic. They're going to be getting sleepy. Their respiratory rate's going to get better, which is actually scary because they're going to start to tire out. So I think you're going to see the clinical signs of this before you're going to see anything else. I would argue strenuously that particularly in, in the initial phases of management, there is not a PCO2 that will change my management up front as far as being more aggressive with taking over the airway and transitioning to positive pressure. I really think you have to focus on the child their mental status in particular, are they combative? Are they sleepy? 
what are the clinical features rather than the actual numbers in the VBG that are going to dictate your management? Can you guys be a little less nice to each other? <laughs> We're getting I mean, there. This is, this is ridiculous. It's the holiday season, Eileen. Yeah, we are getting there. So give it, give it a moment. I'm kind of getting into this, you know, WWE kind of thing. I'm going to have to get myself some acrylic nails, hair extensions, maybe some boobs. I probably need some boobs. Boobs. Yeah. All right. Anyway, moving on. Enough about me. So your kid is starting to tire out. They're just awake, alert. They'll answer questions for you. I mean, in maybe one word answers, but you can tell the kid's getting tired and they're having trouble keeping up with their respiratory needs. How do you handle that? You've got the pharmacologic kitchen sink, so now you're going to move on to the respiratory kitchen sink. Probably when the kid hits the door, for me, they're going right on to the high flow setup. It's going to do a couple of things. One, it's going to get the humidity in there, hopefully maybe loosen up their secretions a little, a little keep them oxygenated. I can get them very, very well oxygenated with that. So assuming that they're already on that, but they're starting to tire, high flow nasal cannulas only work if the child's able to breathe on their own. Now I'm thinking about, okay, I need to do one other thing before I'm moving on to the intubation. And I'm going to move them on to a BiPAP setup, a non-invasive positive pressure system. And I, I prefer the BiPAP to the CPAP on these kids. Yes. Yeah, so I'll agree with you on that final point. I, I happen to like BiPAP better than CPAP as well. But the one thing I would definitely take issue with is I am not a fan of high flow nasal cannula for asthma. I have yet to see any evidence that's even remotely convincing that it's a worthwhile venture in these asthmatics. And in fact, there's some literature to support the fact that it actually simply delays transition to the next step, which is BiPAP, which could be much harder to recover from as you delay it. Now, you sort of talked about it when the kid hits the door, you're already starting on it. So perhaps it's not as much a delay in your case. But I think most people who manage these critical asthmatics are sort of marching through the pharmacologic stuff, then moving on to these more non-invasive supportive airway and respiratory managements. And personally, I skip right past high flow nasal cannula and go right to BiPAP. There's a lot of literature on high-flow nasal cannula for bronchiolitis, and I want to extrapolate it to asthma, but I haven't really seen much on high-flow for asthma. What is the data on that? There's certainly data in the adult literature on high-flow for asthma. There is some data out there on the high-flow for um, pediatric asthma as well, but you're right, a lot of it's extrapolation from bronchiolitis. Maybe because I'm using it so early, I don't know whether the, the high-flow is helping them make them better, or maybe they would do just as well with the nasal cannulas, but I just find that it does make a big difference. Again, this may be my own confirmation bias, but I don't see any reason not to. It, it's pretty harmless. It gets them oxygenated. It gets them hydrated. Interesting. You know, from what I've seen in the pediatric literature, at least, the only real positive studies for high flow were comparing it to conventional oxygen delivery. You know, questions of feasibility. Can you administer some of these nebulized medications through high flow? Is there an advantage of high flow versus conventional oxygen delivery with an aerosol mask? And they've been found to be, you know, equally effective, certainly no harm from the high flow nasal cannula. But from what I can, can see in the pediatric literature, at least, regarding comparisons of high flow to the other non-invasive modalities such as BiPAP and CPAP, I think it's fairly clear to me that it's inferior to those. So I think it depends, Al, on what you're actually trying to compare. And in your case, you seem to be comparing it to conventional oxygen therapy at the onset. And in that case, I think you have every reason to believe that it's certainly not inferior and may provide some benefits. For me, I'm tending to think of high flow when I'm trying to decide whether I'm doing high flow versus other non-invasive positive pressure. For me, in that case, as of current state, to me, the literature tells me very clearly 
don't bother with high flow, just move right on to BiPAP. I start usually with relatively low settings, 15 over 5 as an example. It's an interesting question. I think it depends on how it's being asked as to what the appropriate answer is given the current knowledge. All right. Can I say smack down? Smack down. Well, I know we've introduced a little bit of disagreement, which is great. But honestly, when you look at the literature on this, A, very sparse, and B, all over the map, there appears to be a recent study, a meta-analysis looking at children, mainly with bronchiolitis or pneumonia, that showed higher treatment failure with high-flow oxygen versus CPAP, as well as a trend for increased need for intubation and mortality. When you look across some more of the literature at high flow in asthma, one study showed equivalent to nebulizer mask. Another study showed equivalence to conventional oxygen therapy, not resounding endorsements. But another study in children showed equivalence to BiPAP, although arguably the BiPAP group was sicker. I think in essence, Al is probably right. If you do it early instead of conventional oxygen therapy, that's probably great. Doing it later when the patient really needs support, probably at that point, you should go bigger, like BiPAP. Summary. So in summary, when we have a very sick pediatric asthma patient, we want to be aggressive early. We don't want to mess around. So let's give them the kitchen sink. And that would include, of course, nebulized treatments, our beta agonists, our anticholinergics, but also epinephrine IM. Autoinjector works pretty well. Magnesium IV at a dose of 50 milligrams per kilo, steroids IV, and even terbutaline given intramuscularly can be quite useful. The dose there is 0.01 mg per kilo, which also happens to be the dose of epinephrine, both of those up to a max dose of 0.4 milligrams. In terms of numbers, you know, your pH and your PCO2 on that VBG are really not going to help you. What you want to do is focus in on the clinical picture. How is the respiratory rate? How is the respiratory effort? What is the mental status like? And that's what you want to guide your decisions and your treatment towards. In terms of supportive ventilatory and respiratory care for Al, he likes high-flow nasal cannula up front with a transition to BiPAP. And Jeff is not quite a fan of the high-flow nasal cannula up front. He likes to go straight to BiPAP. Now, in part two, we're going to cover the difficult decision to intubate the child, what medications to use, and the mechanical ventilatory settings. See you then. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi, and I'm back with another rural medicine case. This time, it's not one of my cases from the far north. But it's a bit of a different situation. It was far away, far up in the air, actually, this occurred. And to tell this story, I am joined by Dr. Aisha Khatib. Aisha, welcome to Rural Medicine MRAP. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you so much, Vanessa, for having me on MRAP. My name is Aisha Khatib, and I'm an assistant professor with the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. And I've specialized in family and emergency medicine in the past as well as a current specialization in travel and tropical medicine. So I'm the clinical director of travel medicine at MedCan here in Toronto currently. Travel medicine is the key word here, and traveling isn't stuff that we've been able to do a lot of in the last few years with the COVID pandemic. But you did have a trip that you took recently, a few months ago now, and um, I believe some interesting things happened on that trip. So why don't you set the scene? Where were you going? And uh, tell us what happened. 
Yeah, so this was in December of 2021, and I was on my way to Uganda from Toronto to be part of a tropical medicine course. So I was heading from Doha to Uganda. This was the third flight, and it was about three in the morning. I was about to get nestled in for a much-needed nap, and they announced if there was a doctor or medical personnel on board. I'm assuming you stood up and headed up to see the flight attendant? Yeah, so the flight attendant was nearby, and so I introduced myself. I told her I was trained in family and emergency medicine, and how could I be of assistance? She directed me to the rear section of the economy seats, and I saw a crowd of people And the first thing that came to my mind was, oh dear, someone's had a heart attack because I couldn't see what was happening. And this was a packed plane and it was dark. So I really couldn't really see what was going on. So as I walked over quickly and trying to really think about, okay, where am I going to manage CPR if I have to? And thinking of all the COVID precautions and where I would, you know, try to figure out what would be the best location to do this. I walked up to the scene, I see this woman lying there with her head towards the aisle and her feet towards the window, and a baby was coming out. Ah. <laughs> so not, <laughs> not a case that needed CPR, hopefully, but a baby on its way. This woman was delivering a baby, and there was a crowd around her, and they all looked quite shocked, and no one was really doing anything, and... So I introduced myself. I said, I'm the doctor. Somebody threw me a pair of gloves. And the first thing I did as this baby was already coming out was grab onto this baby as it was kind of making its exit. So that's how I was introduced to <laughs> this situation. I had no no background at all, no history on the mom. It was quite an exciting time, <laughs> a nerve wracking time as well. So how long between the time you sort of got to where the patient was sitting to when the baby came out? What time elapsed? Oh, I mean, it was all pretty quick. As I saw what was happening, I put the gloves on and was, you know, right in there and trying to see if anyone was leading the situation, really. So probably a few seconds until I realized that there was nobody leading the situation. And and at that point, I said, okay, I guess I'm it. So the first thing that just started going through my mind was, what do I need here? What do I have available to me? And how am I going to do this? So... You know, as I'm holding this baby, as it's as it's kind of sliding out, I kind of propped it on the seat. There was an airplane blanket there, and, and baby was, you know, crying. I'm assessing its Apgars, you know, and, and kind of trying to clean it down, rub it down with the blanket. And at that point, someone taps me on the left shoulder and says, I'm a nurse, but I'm an oncology nurse. And I said, I don't care what kind of nurse you are. Get me the medical kit. I need the medical kit. And at that point, I just started thinking out loud. I said, okay, I need clamps. I need scissors. If I don't have clamps, I need shoelaces. I need hot water. And then I'm thinking, no, I, I don't need hot water. But they always ask for hot water in the movies. So I'm thinking, okay, what else do I need? I don't need hot water. And <laughs> I said, I need blankets. And I'm just trying to think, okay, what do I need to kind of um, do? I haven't delivered a baby in, in over 10 years. As that's happening, you know, introducing myself to mom, trying to get a little bit of information to make sure she's okay, not in pain. She was pretty calm and stoic. I think she was more in shock. They basically pull out the medical kit and I said, look for a delivery kit. 
there should be a delivery kit on there. You know, I've done some research and work on air travel and COVID, and I've worked with some of the airline doctors from Air Canada and Air Transat before, so I know, you know, what's typically in these kits. And luckily, there was a delivery kit. So it had some clamps, some scissors, and it had little plastic clamps. And surprisingly, it had oxytocin. Really? Yes. And at that <laughs> point, like I breathed in a sigh of relief because in my mind, I'm thinking all the things that could go wrong right now. I'm thinking, oh, this woman could bleed. This baby could stop breathing. You know, all these things are happening and I'm trying to figure out how am I going to do this. So I have that. And as I'm opening this up, somebody taps me on my right shoulder and says, hi, I'm a pediatrician with MSF. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. We have an entire team. <laughs> it's like, great. We get the, the kit open and I'm able to clamp the cord with some the two Kellys that were in there. And I, with the assistance of the pediatrician, I cut the cord, had a good look over at baby and got some more airline blankets, cleaned the baby up, wrapped it up and passed her onto the pediatrician. I said, please check the heart rate, check her over, make sure she's okay. I need to still deliver the placenta. At this point, I had no history about the mom, no medical history. You know, all these things are going through my mind. I know she's from Uganda. You know, is she anemic? Is she sickle cell? Like, she seemed okay at this point. There wasn't a lot of bleeding and she wasn't a lot of discomfort. So I said, okay, let's take this really slowly. So I said, okay, I need blankets. But I was like, okay, how do I do this? I said, well, where am I going to put the placenta? So I was like, I need a plastic bag. <laughs> and you know, it's really good. I think I was just thinking out loud and to myself really. But as I was doing this, people were just handing me things, which was amazing because I had no idea who was around me. I wasn't really paying much attention because I was so focused on what needed to be done. So I waited and did some just gentle kind of cord traction until I felt the placenta kind of ready to give and was then able to deliver the placenta. And then you can imagine the first thing going through my head is I do not want this woman to bleed. So I gave that woman a uterine massage like <laughs> no other. And I wanted to really <laughs> bring that uterus down so that it was rock hard. So I massaged her uterus as that placenta was coming out until I felt it was not going to bleed. <laughs> and then I, you know, had a really good look at the placenta to make sure there wasn't anything missing and to make sure it looked okay before I put it in the bag because we still had five hours left of this flight. At that point, I was like, if she bleeds, I don't really have many options. I didn't give the oxytocin. And I think, you know, in hindsight, I should have. I think one of the worries I had was about postpartum hemorrhage. But at that point in time, she seemed stable. She didn't have a lot of bleeding. I had checked to make sure there weren't any obvious tears or anything like that. And I felt pretty comfortable with, you know, her uterus that had kind of shrunk down. But I kept it in, in the sense that we had five hours left of this flight. And if she did start to bleed, I felt like then it would be something that I could use in that situation. However, kind of in hindsight, I think if I had given it, it probably would have reduced her risk of postpartum hemorrhage, given, you know, like to kind of go back and looking at the evidence and, and whatnot around it. But I think one of the things is that, you know, the last time I delivered a baby was in residency. And during those times, even when we're delivering the babies, we never administer the oxytocin. 
It's usually a standing order that's given by the nurses or it's done automatically once the baby's delivered. So it's not something we I've ever physically administered. That was one of the things that I would probably have done differently is given to her I am at that point when I had it instead of just kind of held it and waited just to make sure that she didn't have any issues following. I think that's a really good point, though, because when you're in a resource-strapped environment where you definitely have limited resources, you are your brain is sort of trying to triage, when do I need this? When am I going to give this? And if you've only got one vial of something and you know that it can be used in the case of a real disaster, even if it might prevent that disaster happening, you're kind of like, I have no other fallbacks here. I have nothing mm-hmm. else. I don't have blood on this plane. So I can see how your mind would go there, too. And I'm sure I'd have done the same thing. It's great that you had it. That must have been an enormous relief. (laughs) Absolutely. And so once the placenta was out and, you know, the mom, she seemed okay. And I had a good look. Everything looked okay. She was stable. The pediatrician brought the baby back. Then I said, okay, mom's okay. Baby's okay. So I, I said, congratulations. It's a girl. And at that point, the entire plane erupted in clapping and cheering. And at that point, I realized, oh, right, I'm on a plane. (laughs) I mean, I had completely forgotten, you know, the the context of the situation because I was just so absorbed in what was happening. There was a doctor on Medlink um, that one of the air stewards had on on the phone and brought the phone over and said, look, you know, you've got five hours left of the flight. Did you want to divert? Did you want to land? Or do you think you're okay to keep going? And I said, well, mom seems stable. We had ability to do vitals. And I said, let's get her up into a space where we can monitor her and baby. We've got some skilled medical professional on board in the case that something does start to deteriorate. And at that point, we can always reassess. So we kind of wrapped mom up in blankets and brought her up to business class and we changed her out. I, I put on a pad for her and we basically got baby on to skin and skin and got her latched and breastfeeding right away, which I also knew would help, you know, promote, stimulate some endogenous oxytocin so that if there was any, you know, risk of postpartum, that maybe also might help decrease the risk of that. And then I watched her like a hawk (laughs) for the next five hours. You know, we did vitals every 30 minutes. I checked her pad every 30 minutes. A postpartum hemorrhage is defined as really 500 mils to 1,000 mils of blood loss following delivery and or a 15% change in, in vitals. So blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen. So this was something I was monitoring with the idea that, okay, a full pad like a very full pad is probably equivalent to about 250 mils of blood loss. About maybe two or three hours into the flight, she did have a bit of mild cramping. At that point, I checked the pad again to make sure how much blood she had lost. She had a little bit, but it was not to the point where I felt like she was losing a lot. So I gave her some Tylenol and that was kind of the only other intervention that we had during the rest of the flight. And luckily, she did well and and baby did well. And there wasn't any major complication after that. That's an amazing story. And I really think it's interesting how if you hear about, you know, someone delivering a baby on the plane, I think a lot of people would think about the laboring process for the mom and the doctor being there. And, you know, what would you do and how stressful that would be. But you arrived right at the moment of a delivery, essentially. And then you had all of those medical complications to, to deal with, you know, potential medical complications, I should say. 
It was interesting because I ended up getting her history and everything after the fact, right? So she was a migrant worker coming back from Saudi Arabia. She had had zero prenatal care. She was 25 years old and she didn't even know how far along she was. So she was about 35 weeks is what she told me. And for her, you know, she had come from Riyadh to Doha. She had landed in the Doha airport. She was connecting to Uganda, where she was from. About an hour into her transit, that's when her water broke. And she didn't really understand or maybe process what that meant. She boarded that plane then at 2 a.m. Yet an hour into the flight, what happened was she started complaining of abdominal pain. The air steward noted, she said, are you pregnant? And that's when it kind of dawned on her. She's like, I think the baby's coming. If I were in your shoes, I think I would have been glad not to have known any of that history before. Just be like, okay, I found that out after when the baby was good. <laughs> Mom is good. <laughs> it's like, because that is an extra layer of stress. But then at least you did still have five hours of monitoring here, which would have certainly been nerve wracking. You know, I was, I was very thankful that, you know, things went well. You know, in the end, it was, it was quite lovely because Mom actually decided to name the baby after me. She named her Miracle Aisha. And I had a little necklace with my name in Arabic written on it. So I gave it to her because she was now my namesake. So quite amazing actually to think that she was delivered while flying over the Nile. Looking back from the sort of medical perspective, is there anything, you mentioned the oxytocin, were there any other sort of clinical pearls that you had? I love the shoestring idea. If you don't have a delivery kit in the medical kit, that's a great thought, the shoestrings. Any other thoughts? You know, after this whole situation that happened, it's amazing to hear actually how many people have been on a medical emergency in flight on board in regards to our colleagues. You know, I was looking at the stats and there's probably about 130 per million passenger prevalence of having an onboard medical emergency or about one in every 604 flights. So that's quite significant. And out of that, you know, delivery is more rare. So it's about one in 26 million passengers. But you can imagine there's anywhere between three to four and a half billion passengers per year, four and a half billion before pandemic, and about about 42 million flights a year. So the chances of, of something like this happening are, are pretty high. So I think one of the things is to understand that there, all the planes will have a medical kit. So if you're in a situation like this, always ask for the medical kit to see kind of what your resources are in that regard. Most of the air stewards will have some medical training or at least some direction. And again, there's always going to be the option of having a MedLink doctor or a doctor over a phone that can also guide you. For example, if I needed to administer the oxytocin and I didn't know how much or whatnot, somebody on the ground could guide you in regards to giving doses. So know that you are not necessarily alone in these situations. You have resources that you can use. And often there's some may some base instructions as well in the medical kit. So I think that's worth considering. And the other thing is, is yes, being resourceful is if you don't have what you would need, what other things could you use in that situation? But yeah, hot water is not one of them. It's amazing, actually, it was like 13 years of medical training and only, only movie scenes come back. <laughs> your head. I know it's funny. The instinct is still hot water. But luckily on airplanes, there are lots of blankets, at least on long overnight flights. So that's good. Blankets were covered. I'm glad about that. And I think there's always going to be the opportunity to assess your vitals, right? So sticking with your basics, uh, you know, going with your instinct and sticking with your basics. If you don't know what to do, start with the basics. Start with your vitals. Start with where they're at. 
And if you're in doubt, reach out for help. Or if you feel like this is going to be, you know, an emergency situation where you can't handle it or don't feel comfortable to handle it, then yes, then there is the opportunity to divert or land to get urgent medical care. I really liked your idea of saying out loud your thought process. You know, we talk about that in code situations where it's like, let the team members hear what you're thinking in a situation where you have potentially 400 team members who are (laughs) probably listening to what you're saying crowdsource a little bit sometimes, maybe some resources, someone might say they have an idea or something. So I think that's a great plan. And I'm so glad that everything went well and that uh, despite having to stare at her like a hawk for five hours, that (laughs) everyone landed successfully and that you have a beautiful baby girl namesake in Uganda. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing the story. And uh, if you have any other tales, uh, please do let us know. (laughs) Thank you so much, Vanessa. With our dialysis disaster cases, we've got Dr. Coggins, another UCLA third-year resident, here to talk about yet another case of HD emergencies. Doc Coggins, Brit Guest, HD emergencies. Doc Coggins! All right, what do you got? Here's what we got on report from EMS. This patient is an 80-year-old female who has an AV fistula. She was found by her family in her bedroom with a ton of blood around her. There was no active bleeding, and there was a pressure dressing applied by EMS. That being said, EMS was having a little difficulty obtaining a blood pressure. She had a GCS of six, and they were actively bagging her. Actively bagging, bleeding, no pressure at this point. This is sounding pretty terrible. So how does the case unfold? We totally agreed. And the story was pretty consistent with how the patient looked when she first came in. There was blood spattered everywhere on her clothes. Her right arm was wrapped in coband. It was not a particularly impressive pressure dressing, to be honest. We ran through ABACs. She was altered and not meaningfully responsive. Her initial vital signs were blood pressure of 60 over 40. Her heart rate was 115. She was being bagged and had good oxygen saturation at around 92%. We hadn't yet seen the defect in her AV fistula, but it was pretty clear that she was in hemorrhagic shock. And in defense of EMS's report, there actually was no active bleeded coming out from the pressure dressing. My guess here is that this AV fistula probably didn't just magically clot off and you're just not seeing pulsatile bleeding because she's very hypotensive. Totally. Yeah, it seemed very much like the latter. She she bled out more than the reported 500 cc's or, or whatever it was they told us and just had such low systemic pressure that her fistula had stopped bleeding with pretty minimal pressure applied. And the main issue here is that she's in hemorrhagic shock. I think you got to focus on resuscitating her with blood products before going down intubation and paralytics, because that's only going to make her more hypotensive. Yeah, exactly. She was altered because of cerebral hyperperfusion. She had lost a ton of blood in the field. We were bagging her pretty easily and had good oxygenation, so we focused almost all of our efforts on volume resuscitation, at least initially. We were mentally preparing for what we wanted to do if her fistula started to bleed again, but this was very much a, a CAB approach. Okay, so in terms of addressing this hemorrhagic shock, what was your first step? We decided to keep the Coban pressure dressing on until we had resuscitated her with some blood products. We ended up giving her four PRBC, one platelet, and one FFP. Her blood pressure actually improved pretty dramatically after the blood products went in, and as did her mental status. We took the pressure dressing down, and 
lo and behold, we saw some pulsatile bleeding. Aha, there we go. You get a blood pressure, you get pulsatile bleeding. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think we ever truly believed that the bleeding had stopped given her vital signs, but yeah, this confirmed it. All right, so at this point, you are resuscitating this person with blood products. Now, what are you going to do to control this bleeding? We started by applying direct pressure. So AV fistulas are high flow but low pressure systems, which can be controlled the vast majority of the time by applying direct pressure to the defect. If you're working alone or with very limited ancillary staff, you can use an inflated BP cuff as a hands-free approach. Occasionally, the defect is, is just too big to apply direct pressure effectively, in which case you can have somebody who's there with you apply pressure above and below the defect, or you can put two tourniquets, one above, one below. Is there ever such thing as too much pressure? I mean, of course, our main focus is to control the bleed. But in the end, we also don't want to damage the AV fistula by applying a tourniquet either for too long or too tightly that actually might cause problems down the road for them using this fistula in the future. And I think we've all had that thought or that fear when we're pressing down hard, just praying that this bleed will stop. You know, am I going to damage the AV fistula or will it thrombose if I leave the tourniquet up too long? And sort of what I've gathered is that we generally have a misunderstanding in the ER in that we assume that the limb needs to be ischemic in order to control the bleed. In reality, we should just try to apply as little pressure as possible over the actual defect and then increase that incrementally until we get hemostasis. The same applies to how tightly we wrap a tourniquet. Although I couldn't find any pressures that explicitly discussed, you know, is there such thing as too much pressure? I just think, generally speaking, a progressive approach will ensure that we're only using as much pressure as we actually need. Okay, so... Other than applying pressure, what other approaches can we consider to control this bleeding for this patient? Depending on the size of the defect, you can try topical hemostatic agents. If it's just an oozy AV fistula after hemodialysis, then try TXA-soaked gauze or Surgicel or gel foam along with direct pressure to give yourself the best shot. I think our patient was destined for the OR from the get-go. For the record, we did try topical TXA. I'm not sure that it made much of a difference in her case. Right. Okay. So topical TXA, topical hemostatic agents, I think those can be helpful. Now, I've had a few of these where just holding pressure doesn't seem to be enough and you really can't control the bleed with just direct pressure. Is there anything else that you can consider in terms of like something systemic, reversal agents for patients with dialysis? You know, they probably have significant other comorbidities. Would you just empirically start reversal agents to help control this bleed? Dialysis patients notoriously have altered platelet function that's known to respond well to DDAVP. So it follows logic that giving DDAVP might help. I recently spoke with a vascular surgeon who felt similarly, but there just really isn't any published data on the specific use of DDAVP in the setting of AV fistula bleeds. We ended up giving DDAVP to our patient for what it's worth. So we considered giving TXA, but ultimately decided against it because we had good control of the bleed and she was headed to the OR anyway. We didn't want to increase the chance that she'd thrombose. That being said, there really isn't much data on the use of systemic TXA for AV fistula bleeds either. It has been shown to reduce mortality and trauma and in postpartum hemorrhage patients. However, the utility in high-pressure bleeds is less known. In conversations with vascular surgeons, it seems like the utility of TXA in AV fistula bleeds is, is very much unclear. And finally, we considered protamine, but The patient hadn't recently had hemodialysis or hadn't received heparin for another reason, so there really wasn't any indication for it. 
In terms of the DDAVP, I think I can get behind that. That makes sense, right? They have altered platelet function. It seems like it could cause little harm and might be worth trying to give. But in general, it sounds like systemic drugs maybe aren't the best answer. I think we just don't have enough data to really know what their benefits are. All right. So what if you get into the situation where direct pressure, topical agents, everything that you're doing, it's just not working? Then what? The definitive intervention is repairing it. So either at bedside or in the OR, you can put in a figure eight or a purse string suture. They're both fine. Just make sure you're taking a big bite and pulling the skin over the defect to tamponade the bleed. These patients should be watched in the ER for development of expanding hematomas. And even if you stop the bleed with placement of a suture, the patient will need really close follow-up with vascular surgery. Key takeaways. Thankfully, we don't see a ton of really bad AV fistula bleeds all that frequently. It's a really stressful situation. Thinking through this case, what are some of the takeaways that you can apply to your next patient who comes in into your ER with a bleeding fistula? The obvious takeaway, at least initially for this case, is, is just make sure that you've adequately resuscitated these patients before you call anything hemostatic. A call from the field with no active bleeding can give you a false sense of security. Secondly, there's a reason why direct pressure is the mainstay of AV fistula bleed management. We should be able to stop the vast, vast majority of these by applying direct pressure alone. And if it doesn't work, then the application of pressure above and below the defect can help stop bleeding long enough for you to place a stitch or get the patient to the OR for repair. A tourniquet that makes the limb ischemic is really not necessary in most of these cases. That being said, I would still load a tourniquet above and below just in case. I did want to say that there is a good chapter in Corpenium about hemodialysis emergencies and how to deal with them. And you should be checking Corpenium all the time because it's getting bigger and better all the time. And uh, they systematically go through some of the stuff about DDAVP and TXA and stuff as well. So thank you for this case, an interesting one, and one that is not infrequent. Those uh, dialysis things, uh, they can bleed like pigs that are stuck. You, do I make you laugh? What's so amusing about me, huh? What? That's right, our very own Italian stallion and his community medicine rants, Dr. Dr. Al, Al Sacchetti. Sacchetti. So pretty much anyone who's listening to this podcast has run into this problem at some point during their practice. You place a central venous catheter or you place a dialysis catheter into somebody's femoral vein. And everything goes well, you suture it in, and there's this persistent ooze right around the catheter itself. So you hold a little bit of pressure on it, and you kind of slink away from the bedside. And the nurses come and hunt you down and say, uh, hey, doc, uh, that catheter you placed is still leaking around the catheter site. And tell them, just hold a little bit more pressure on it. And this can go on and off throughout the most of your shift. It's a little bit of pressure, just a little bit more pressure. Oh, we'll sit their head up a little bit. That'll stop it. And it just won't go away. So out of frustration, you go back. Throw a stitch around the catheter, cinch it down really tight, nice knot, and then you think you're home free. And you are until the next day when your buddy calls you from the ICU with some unpleasant words about you and your ancestors because he or she spent the last 20 minutes trying to dig the knot out of the purse string you put around the catheter that was leaking. Well, you can't just let it leak, and you have to do something about it, and unless you've got a particularly annoying tech or nurse you want to stand there and hold pressure on it, you are going to have to throw a suture around it. However, you don't have to put a knot in the suture. 
There's a technique called the woggle technique. Woggle baby, woggle baby, woggle baby, woggle. W-O-G-G-L-E. It was actually pointed out to me by my nephew, who's an interventional radiologist. And what it involves is a suture, but what you do is you place the suture without tying a knot. And what they do is they use this when they place different catheters into arteries and veins, mainly in the arteries, when they're doing different uh, interventional procedures. And what they'll do is, actually, they'll do it before they pull the catheter out, is they'll throw a suture underneath the catheter, pull both ends up, cut the needle off, and then they do something interesting. They take a stopcock, a garden variety stopcock that goes onto any of the vascular tubing, and they turn the little lever on it so it points directly sideways, so it's pointing toward the side port, and that leaves an opening that goes straight through the rest of the stopcock. They'll take the two ends of the suture material, pass it through the stopcock, and pull it out the other end. They'll push it down against the skin and then turn the lever on the stopcock, and this cinches it down against the skin. So if you've thrown the suture underneath the catheter, so now you have it a suture that goes through the skin, under the catheter, and back out of the skin, cut the needle off, take the two ends, pass it through the stopcock, turn the lever, it cinches it down and it stops the bleeding. You can just leave it like that, which would really tick off the nursing staff because they can't put their sterile dressings on it. And besides, you've got a stopcock sticking out of somebody's neck, which some uninformed individual is always going to try and attach some tubing to. But what you do is you leave it in place for about 15 minutes, maybe even a half hour if you have to, if they're on some type of anticoagulant. And then you come back and you take the stopcock and you turn it back to the neutral position. You, You rotate the little lever on it so it's now pointing towards the side port. Take the stopcock off, and then you have two ends of the suture material. Take one of the ends, pull it, and that'll pull the suture out, leaving you with a nice dry catheter insertion site, period. Now, if you unloosen the stopcock and you see it's still oozing a little bit, rotate the, the little lever again and seal it off again and give it another 15 minutes or so. Pretty much most of the time, it's only going to take about 15 minutes at max to seal off that little bit of oozing around the catheter, and it worked great. Now, you want to be careful that you get your needle underneath the catheter when you go to place this suture. I know of a certain who will remain unnamed emergency physician who does podcasts, who actually once placed the needle through the sheath he was uh, introducing. It was kind of embarrassing when they turned the fluid on and it went sideways in the subcutaneous tissue. Eh, things happen. Anyway, make sure that you get the needle well underneath the catheter and before you bring it out the other side. Taking the catheter and actually pulling it up against the skin helps a little bit with this. And then once you get the two ends out, then you can cut the needle off and and put your stopcock on. The other thing that helps sometimes is to have an assistant push down on the stopcock while you pull up on the suture material alternately you can have them pull up on the suture material while you push down on the stopcock and then rotate the little lever on it. Now, this works great for catheters that are put in there, but you can also use this for leaking dialysis grafts. So we've talked about in the past how to put a per-check button on a leaking dialysis graft, but if you have somebody who comes in and they have the same thing, what you can do is per-string the hole that's leaking Pass the suture through the stopcock, slide it down, rotate the lever, just the same as you do if you're suturing around a leaking CBC catheter. We've included a couple of videos about how to do it for both a dialysis leaking site and a CBC catheter in the MRAP videos. 
the other thing is, once the staff gets used to using this, you can actually have the nurses be the ones to remove the stopcock. They'll loosen it. If it's still oozing, they'll tighten it back up because they want to get their sterile dressing on there as quickly as possible. So they'll just loosen the stopcock. If the oozing is stopped, they'll remove it and then just pull the suture material out. So that's it. Just a little hack from your friends in interventional radiology. Take care, guys. Waggle, baby, waggle, baby, waggle, baby, waggle. A waggle, baby, waggle, baby, waggle, baby, waggle. A waggle, baby, waggle, waggle. From the city with the last remaining blockbuster in the world. A what? Bend, Oregon. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Cardiovascular Corner. With your host, Dr. Susie Demeester. It's been a little while since we had a heavy cardiology topic, and I've got Susie Demeester back on to drop into some heavy, heavy cardiology, super important for our daily work. Susie, great to have you back on. Thanks, Swami. And yes, you know, I'm always up for some cardiology talk, and I'm going to be talking about a case that one of my superstar partners managed a couple months ago, which really got me thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Let's drop into the case and see what unfolded. This is a 38-year-old male. He has no past medical history. He's an ultramarathoner because, well, he's from Bend. Said 38-year-old is doing an ultramarathon, and he notices some cramping during the race but completes the race. And afterwards, thank goodness he's with a friend, he collapses, has a syncopal episode in the hotel room, and then presents to the ED after the syncopal episode with left-sided weakness, a left facial droop, and a rightward gaze. His vital signs, he's afebrile, his heart rate's 82, blood pressure 141 over 96, pulse ox 95%. The patient was transported to CT for a CT brain and also a CTA of the brain and neck. The ED physician is handed the EKG, which shows super impressive ST segment elevation in the anterior and lateral leads. And I mean, this does not look like early repull. There are not any reciprocal changes that I could see. At this point, I'm really thinking, I'm hearing about this case from my partner. I'm thinking this guy must have a dissection. The next thing our ED physician does is he calls the interventional cardiologist who luckily is in house and comes quickly down to the emergency department, takes a look at the EKG and agrees, hey, this looks like a STEMI. And at the same time, our point of care troponin comes back elevated, 0.27. There's a lot to really kind of synthesize in this kind of a presentation where you've got clear stroke-like symptoms and you've got these ST elevations on the EKG. That doesn't match. That's not what our brain wants to put together. Our brain wants to put together chest pain, shortness of breath, ST segment deviation. That's a acute coronary occlusion. Get them to the cath lab, give them thrombolytics. That's what our brain wants to do. And most of the time when we see ST elevations, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with an acute coronary occlusion. But there is that small subset of patients who have ST elevations and something else is going on. And one of the things that you alluded to is ST elevations plus neurologic symptoms should make you think about dissection. We've talked about dissection many times in the past, but as a reminder, why does a dissection or why can a dissection cause ST deviation? With a type A dissection, you can have retrograde dissection into the coronaries, into the pericardium, and that's how you end up seeing ischemia and tamponade physiology. And the first coronary that's usually going to be hit is this right coronary. And that's why usually on an EKG, if you're going to see anything, it's going to be inferior ST segment elevations. 
let's jump back to our case. So this patient went to CAT scan and the CT showed a low density lesion in the inferior frontal lobe. And the radiologist commented that the appearance was pretty atypical for an ischemic type infarct and recommended considering an MRI. Now, in this case, the astute physician was thinking dissection and asked the text to scan to the level of the aortic arch. So there was no dissection. But because the CT read was still kind of ambiguous and there was this concern for a bleed, the neurologist felt it was really important to obtain a rapid MRI. And this MRI confirmed multiple areas of acute and subacute infarction in the right hemisphere. There was a lot of collaboration between the ED physician, the neurologist, and the cardiologist. And the big concern here is that once you give a thrombolytic TNK for us, the patient can no longer go immediately for PCI because lytics are a contraindication to both systemic anticoagulation as well as antiplatelet therapy. And ultimately, because of this patient's rather severe neurologic deficits, the team of physicians decided to give TNK basically right at that four hour mark after symptom onset. While they are starting the TNK, a stat bedside echo is also being done, which showed global LV dysfunction. And then the working diagnosis became Takotsubo's. Just a quick review here on Takotsubo's. Again, this is a reversible, typically stress-induced cardiomyopathy, which is really a STEMI mimic. So you're going to see ST segment elevation on your EKG, and you're also going to have elevated troponins. This patient's admission diagnosis was an ischemic CVA, likely embolic, and Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. That's a completely crazy case and definitely not what we would have been thinking about going into it. It's great that you can get all of this care brought to the bedside. And I think it really brings up a couple of important issues. The patient didn't really have symptomology going for MI. So going to PCI didn't make the most sense, especially with those neurologic findings. Giving a thrombolytic in this patient who has ischemic symptoms, has changes on MRI, kind of makes sense as the next step. I don't think that most of us would have been able to get that stat echo, but it makes sense to try to get one when they have these EKG abnormalities that really brings all the diagnoses into question. And now what we've got on our list is a third reason to have ST elevation. So we've got the acute coronary occlusion. That's the most common. That's one we're always thinking about. We've got dissection that we have to think about, especially if the patient has chest or back pain and neurologic symptoms. We've got Takotsubo, which I'm going to be honest, Susie, not going to be high on my list of things that I'm going to be thinking about when I see ST elevations, even with these neurologic changes. But there are others too, and I want to go through that list. So what else should be on our list when we see a patient who has ST elevations, but they don't really fit into that, I think this is an ACS or an acute coronary occlusion, what other causes of ST elevation do we need to be thinking about? For me, I guess I would think about hyper-K and pulmonary embolism as the two big, more common can't-miss ones. And then other things to consider are myopericarditis, vasospasm, ventricular aneurysm, high voltage, so things like LVH or WPW, sodium channelopathies like TCA, Brugada, then Takotsubo, as was the case for this patient, and then things causing global myocardial ischemia. It's an important list for us to know about, and I, I love that Amal has gone through this. He's discussed it many times on lectures, on his EKG cast that he does. And I think it's important for us to 
think about all of those, especially like you said, hyperkalemia and PE, because it can be easily missed. You can easily go down the wrong pathway because those ST elevations are right in your face. Hyper-K, of course, can cause anything. And when you have ST elevations without the typical symptoms of MI in a dialysis patient, I think you got to be thinking about hyper-K pretty soon or very early as a possible diagnosis. I think there's some other ones in there that maybe we don't talk about as much. One of those you mentioned was LV aneurysm. And I've seen this a couple of times where patients come in, they look great. They have some relatively non-cardiac type of complaint, but somebody gets an EKG on them and you see those big ST elevations. And it takes a little bit of digging to find out that what is actually going on there is an LV aneurysm. Susie, what are the typical patients that have that LV aneurysm with those chronic ST changes? Yes, these LV aneurysms, they're typically post-myocardial infarction. And usually you're seeing diffuse ST segment elevation without reciprocal changes. And I think the best thing is to try to get your hands on an old EKG because it's going to look pretty similar. Now, backtracking a little bit, you talked about, and you know, I mentioned hyperkalemia, but this one is so critical. This is really a can't miss diagnosis. And I think many of us have been burned, me included, sending a patient to the catheterization suite only to get a call from the lab with a critically high potassium. The EKG waveforms with hyper-K, they have this really classically bizarre appearance. And I think the more you see it, the more accustomed you are to being able to make this diagnosis. The QRS, it's often really wide and often with a rightward axis, which is pretty rare in STEMIs. You can also see this rightward axis in another ST segment elevation producing diagnosis, and that is pulmonary embolism. So we've got this list in our minds of other things that can cause ST elevations, but of course, we're always worried that the patient is actually having an acute coronary occlusion. They're having an MI in front of us, and by delaying that diagnosis, looking for those other things, we're going to reduce their benefit from getting PCI or getting thrombolytics. So if we have that patient in front of us where the story doesn't fit, they don't have classic ACS symptoms, but the EKG shows those ST elevations, what can we do to kind of try to tease that out and say, oh, no, 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 this is a STEMI, even though the patient doesn't have classic symptoms or say, you know what? I don't think this is a STEMI. I got to chase some of these other things down. My action items would be to obtain, I think it's critical to obtain serial EKGs. You're looking for some evolution of ischemia versus something that's just not changing. Getting a troponin, but knowing that troponin can be elevated with some of these other etiologies. If you're able to do a bedside echo or obtain a formal echo, I think that's a great adjunct. And then ultimately, some of these patients may need to undergo coronary angiography to really kind of determine what the, their ultimate diagnosis is. Serial EKGs, serial troponins, point of care echo, or if you can get it done, the radiology department comprehensive echo. Sometimes that can be hard to get done, but you don't know if you can get it until you ask. So I think in these cases where the diagnosis is really up in the air, getting cardiology involved, that can obviously help to get that echo done as you need it done um, a little bit more on the emergency side as opposed to after they get admitted. And I think that you're right. That gives us some steps to try to tease this apart, figure out what's going on. Obviously, some of the history can help us as well, like we mentioned with hyperkalemia, but doing those serial EKGs, looking for changes, doing the serial troponins, getting an echo, these are good items for us to reach for with those ST elevations. And I want to go back to one more of the diagnosis in that list that you gave us, which is intracranial pathology. 
I've seen this a couple of times when we go back to the case that you have, where this patient had clear neurologic findings, they had clear defects on their MRI, but they also had Takotsubo and they had these ST elevations. Do we think that those ST elevations are from the Takotsubo, from the intracranial pathology or both? And I guess really the question, Susie, is why is intracranial pathology causing ST elevations and what intracranial pathology causes ST elevations? You know, I've seen this a few times, but I did a little deeper digging into the literature and discovered that ST segment elevation, as well as T-wave changes, are not that uncommon when it comes to intracranial pathology. And it seems that it's most common with intracranial hemorrhage. So more common with intracranial bleeds than with CVAs, but there's also cases, EKG changes occurring with tumors and with meningitis. And the two most common underlying mechanisms appear to be either neurogenic stun myocardium due to catecholamine surge, or as was the case for this patient, stress cardiomyopathy. I think the fact that the ST segment elevation, these EKG changes are more commonly seen with intracranial hemorrhage is pretty terrifying because can you imagine what's going to happen if you heparinize this patient or give them lytics or antiplatelet agents? They're really not going to do well. And I think, again, that when the story doesn't fit, we all need to really slow down, take a look at that list, and think about things like dissection, intracranial pathology, hyperkalemia, pulmonary embolism. That is the key here. And I think that's a reminder to all of us that we have to leave with. Summary. When you see ST elevations, think about the story. For a case to be ACS, for it to be an acute coronary occlusion, we're looking for a history and story and symptomology that fits with ACS along with those EKG changes. And when you don't have that combination, we have to step out of that comfort zone and say, okay, well, could I be dealing with a dissection? Could I be dealing with some kind of intracranial pathology? The one that I always think about, Susie, with that is if they have altered mental status and ST elevations, I'm thinking intracranial pathology. I'm thinking about that intracranial hemorrhage. But also hyper-K and PE, these are critical diagnoses that we need to be able to make. And so it all comes back to looking at the EKG, taking the history and the physical exam, putting all of that together and saying, do I think I'm dealing with an acute coronary occlusion? I'm going down that pathway. Or is this one of those outlier cases where they have ST elevations, but it's due to one of these other issues. And so I need to do the other steps, getting that CAT scan of the head, getting serial EKGs, getting electrolytes getting troponins to see whether they're rising or falling. I think all of that can really come together to make sure that we get these diagnoses, we treat them properly, and we don't bring the wrong treatment to the wrong patient. Susie, so great to go over all of this with you. We will include that list of all of those things that cause ST elevations in the show notes so people can refer to it. And I can't wait to have you back on to talk again about an interesting case that isn't just about the case, but about what we can learn to improve our care for all of the patients that we see. Thanks, Swami. I will see you next time. Welcome to ASEP Now and MRAP's World Travels. We're here for the World Travelers edition, where we're going to be talking about another healthcare system this time. This time we'll be talking about the Australian healthcare system. I'll slip an extra shrimp on the barbie for you. It's similar for the listeners of MRAP to what you might expect from Canada. Sorry. Right, which is kind of like the single-payer sort of 
type of system. In the United States, we call it Medicare. In Australia, they call their program Medicare. Actually, and I think in Canada, they call their program Medicare. So essentially, we're going to be talking about Medicare. Then every Australian, from newborn babe to prime minister, can share in the cheapest, simplest, and fairest health insurance scheme Australia's ever had. And in Australia, just a, a quick summary of how it came about. There's a push towards their current healthcare system in the mid-1970s. It culminated in what they call Medicare in 1984, and it provides free public hospital care, uh, substantial coverage for physician services and for pharmaceuticals, and it covers Australian citizens, residents with permanent visas, and I found this interesting, even some folks from New Zealand as well. Their federal government finances their Medicare system, but it has a very limited role in the actual delivery of healthcare. The states, they own and manage uh, service delivery for like public hospitals, ambulances, public dental care, community health, which can include anything from primary or preventative care, and then also um, mental health care as well. And then local governments play a role in the delivery of community health and preventive health programs such as immunizations, which obviously is a big thing during COVID these days. Like in the United States, a substantial portion of the gross domestic product goes towards healthcare, but it's only about 10% in Australia. It's about 17% in the U.S., and two-thirds of that is paid for by public dollars. Now, some interesting things that we get to benefit from is that there's workforce shortages in Australia, so they get a lot of their workforce from internationally trained physicians like our next discussant, who's going to be Justin Hensley, who's coming from Texas, recently moved to Australia last summer and is practicing there now. So, Justin, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Now, I found this part interesting. I was reading up on the Australian healthcare system earlier and this international health profiles that they have from the Commonwealth Fund, which for any of you that want to learn more, it's a great resource. But they were talking about a lot of the healthcare practices there have this technology and they can process things like claims. So reimbursement goes like, from public to private payers pretty much instantaneously. Nothing like what we have in the U.S. where, you know, it takes sometimes weeks, months to get your payments processed. You have some familiarity with that in your days of being sort of a business owner in the freestanding market in Texas, right? Correct. Yeah. It, it was, you know, 90 days was a good day to get reimbursed by any of the private insurers. You know, it's a reason why a significant number of them closed, honestly, because you just, you can't keep the lights on if you're not getting paid. So the the disconnect and the claims being pushed back was horrendous. It is significantly better here, yes. And then also, like, if they don't have that technology in place, uh, patients tend to pay their full fee and then get reimbursed from the Medicare program and or their insurer if they have private supplemental insurance, which is pretty much the opposite of what we do in the United States. So just interesting the way things are kind of paid for and financed there. But Another thing, also on the tech side, supposedly there's this interoperable national e-health program that's based on personally controlled, unique patient identifiers. And I'm wondering, how does that work in comparison to the U.S. where we have so many different proprietary EMRs, none of which seem to want to talk to one another, even if the hospital, you know, is across the street from one. So what's your experience been with that? Every patient has a Medicare number. Every Australian patient or PR has their own Medicare number. And they can all get access to the system and the clerks 100% can access the Medicare information and see this. And I can see what the patient has had to a degree on a kind of an HTML-based system. The hospital does not feed data to that. That just has like 
their Medicare claims results and things. So if, if they've had imaging, but it doesn't say the results, it just says tests they've had and other conditions. And so we, our system in Bunbury is different than the system in Perth, is different than the system in Sydney. And I can't see their notes, but all the systems in Sydney can see each other. And a lot of the systems in Perth can see each other. In Bunbury, we were attached to a private hospital, which is a a unique amalgamation of what happens when you have publicly insured people and privately insured people in the same town. And if we sent patients over there, like all of our cardiac patients went over there, couldn't see any of their notes. So if they got discharged and came back to our ER the next day, couldn't see anything. And so it's great on the billing side. It makes everything real efficient and smooth and fast. Does not mean I can see their actual healthcare record. Not quite the electronic utopia that, that I'm being told about, huh? Well, I have a listener question. We've, we've run a couple of these episodes, and some of the people that uh, have been listening in have posted a question. I wanted to ask this one. You know, in the United States, we're focused on EMTALA, right, where if a patient shows up, you pretty much have to take care of them, make sure there's no emergency. And therefore, a lot of people wind up getting care in emergency departments that probably could be managed in another setting, especially if they're low acuity. So the question was, are people ever referred away to another facility in Australia without being seen? Does that happen? Without being seen, no. Now, that doesn't mean that they haven't been seen by a physician. Nurse practitioners still work and live here, although there is a smaller number of them than in the U.S., and so often they'll manage what we call the fast track. People can be seen, and you can get a kind of from the door, yes, it's unfortunate you're having this social issue or you're having some issue that is not necessarily an emergency, but I don't have to do any tests. I don't have to do any labs. We call them bloods here. Oh, weird. We don't have to do any examinations or other types of things that you would normally feel you would need to do in the U.S. to kind of cover yourself from a malpractice standpoint. You can say, yes, this is a real thing. I'm not the proper person for it. You need to go see your GP tomorrow. And you can just do that and just sign them out and, and they, they leave. They can still have trouble getting in to see their GP and it may take a, a couple more days than usual. But every Medicare patient here has a general practitioner. It is a thing. Like There are no people here that don't have primary care physicians. It's glorious. The issue comes into, depending on geography and other things, just like in the US, if you need somebody that has a specialized problem, hand surgery, ophthalmologic surgery, you know, something kind of specific, those people, because there's an Imtala, they'll be happy to see them, but they'll say, hey, either they need private insurance or They'll need to pay our fee schedule. Here it is. And so that might be a little difficult. Let's talk about, you know, pharmaceuticals, drugs, that kind of thing. Australia has this thing called a pharmaceutical benefit scheme, which gives people some cost sharing. And, and I guess there's some drugs that are approved, some drugs that are not necessarily approved for their benefit scheme. But and, and correct me if my, if my reading of this is wrong, there's still drugs that are available, just not covered by the benefit scheme. So people can still access them, but they might have to pay full price. Yeah, so everything gets shortened in Australia. Nobody likes to say long words. And so it's just called the PBS. And so the first dozen or so times as an outsider, somebody refers to you, you're like, why are they looking at public television? But even patients know it as the PBS. Like it, it is a well-known entity. And basically what it comes down to is you make up an idea of like, I'm going to trade this patient for nausea and abdominal pain. And the PBS is essentially like the preferred drugs list for any private insurer. However, because there's really only one preferred insurer in this country, like you don't have to look up all the ones for if they've got fill-in private 
insurance company X, Y, or Z. It's just, you just go to the PBS scheme website, or just like we do with the MPI numbers, you just type PBS and the drug you're thinking of name, and it brings up the first option that is that PBS website. And you can look up and see how much you can give them, how much it's going to cost them, and if there's any other options to do. And so you learn pretty quickly what certain drugs cost, and so you don't even have to look it up. And most of them are, you know, five to ten dollars. It's not a horrendous amount. But if you're trying to give them some kind of weird, novel thing, you'll quickly learn that it's pretty expensive. And just like in the U.S., eye drops are on the list. You know, there's there's some eye drops that are ten dollars and some that are two hundred dollars or whatever. You know, the number of times in since I've been working here that I've been called by a pharmacy like, hey, this patient wants something cheaper. Can you do something about it? I'm not stuck with like that. I just go to PBS and look up other drugs in that kind of class and pick something that's cheaper and usually go with it. But it's way less than in the US. It does narrow my pharmacologic options a little bit, but it also makes it cost significantly cheaper because it only takes a couple of those outliers that cost $500 or $1,000 a dose to really push drug costs up. And so that's how Medicare kind of keeps the money flowing more efficiently, I guess, is to prevent those outliers from costing a ton and making everything else mostly relatively reasonable. Have you had the experience of being a patient there yet? I haven't, but one of my friends was when we were here in 2019. So it's pretty different. It was the initial part of going in, being seen, evaluated, getting bedside ultrasound by the physician as opposed to getting a formal department ultrasound because it was two in the morning and that wasn't going to happen even in the city of Sydney. Getting all that done, getting the blood work back two to three hours in the emergency department. At the end, they're like, okay, so, uh, you know, you're not Medicare, so you need to pay for this. And it was like $500 as opposed to $3,000 or whatever it would cost in the U.S. for a 2 a.m. emergency visit with multiple blood works, IV pain medications, and an ultrasound. What have you learned from being in Australia that you think could inform how we do things in the United States? The biggest thing and one of the reasons why I, I wanted to come to a, a place that had a system such as this is allowing the non-physicians to dictate the way care is provided puts a lot of roadblocks in our system in the U.S. and really prevents access to care for even people who are gainfully insured. You could have a very needy patient with a medical condition who has an insurance company that should pay for what the physicians deem as necessary. And they will stop that or delay it as much as possible or reject it because they know that rejections are often met with giving up as opposed to continuing to push. And so when the non-clinicians are dictating how care is provided, it makes things cost more. It just adds bureaucracy to medicine and makes what we do not really practicing medicine anymore. It makes us practicing bureaucracy of medicine. There's fewer bureaucrats, fewer administrators, fewer suits kind of between you and the patient. In Australia. Yeah, on the Medicare side. I mean, the hospitals still have the standard, you know, we want to provide the best care. We still have our lean Six Sigma Toyota models of trying to reduce the number of people working to keep the costs down from a hospital standpoint. There's still patient satisfaction, all that stuff. And, and all that stuff is good to a degree if done appropriately. But there's, there's not the, I want this test. I have to f- contact four different people before I can do this test. You know, I want the, my patient to get this follow-up. I make one phone call. I don't make five phone calls. And so that, that really makes, from my view, it to be very efficient. 
we're all getting, you know, volume increases and other things. And so that's that I can see where they're coming from, but it's, it's amazing how much smoother things work here from my perspective. Yeah. Well, everything's relative. And speaking of relative, is there anything that you miss about the U S that you wish was over there? About Texas. I miss breakfast tacos. They make other really fantastic food and you aren't living until you've had saltwater crocodile. I do not miss the weather, so I haven't had a single cyclone in the areas <laughs> I've lived in since I've been here, which has been glorious. And so there's words and colloquialisms that you have to understand. And the first, every single time you pronounce the name of a city in Australia, they'll make fun of you for it because you're doing it wrong. It's uh, you know, Driving on the other side of the road is not as big of a deal as people like to make of it. Uh, it only takes the first couple curbs you hit, and then you figure out where the other side of the car is. I really enjoy it, and the plan is to go through permanent residency and then do citizenship here because it's got some enough benefits, I think, for kids and family and risk profile and modernicity of the city and other things that I think it will be better for all of us. All right, well, cool. Thanks for filling me in on how Australia works from the perspective of an ER doc that's moved from the U.S. to Down Under. Yeah, Down Under. We don't pronounce R's here. You'll have to learn that. It's weird. The Australian R messes everything up. We don't pronounce the R, but we might add in a wa for emphasis. For example, hour. The hour is three o'clock. Or that's ours. That car is ours. Car is. <laughs> Just to be confusing, okay? Crikey! Okay, now there is a magic time to intubate the asthmatic, right? We don't want to intubate them too early. We don't want to sentence them to an unnecessary intubation. We don't want to cause barotrauma. On the other hand, we don't want to intubate them too late. How do you know when that magic time is? I am definitely going to intubate somebody earlier than Jeff is without even waiting for Jeff's answer. I, I know that. And part of that is let's talk about where this child is. If they're in, in my department, it's a community emergency department. I've got no PICU. Literally, I've got no backup. There is an anesthesiologist wandering around the house or actually very helpful, but we don't have any inpatient services. So we're what's happened at the vast majority of community hospitals. They close their PEG units. They don't have a PICU. The ER is going to stabilize and transfer these kids. So a couple of things there. If you're in that circumstance, my threshold for intubating the kid is they're getting tired. Their mental status is going down and they're getting tired. That child's getting a tube. I, I've already thrown the kitchen sink at them. They're not turning around. I'm moving on to the intubation. And for a lot of the people in these community settings, they're the only doc there. They don't have much in the way of backup resources to help them with this. So once they manage the airway, they can just focus on, on the rest of the management of the child. We'll talk about once the tube goes in, everybody understands it's difficult to manage the ventilator in an asthmatic, but that kid starts to get tired. I'm not waiting until all the reserve is gone. How long do you give them to turn around? You threw the kitchen sink at them. They're buried under the kitchen sink. How long until you dig them out and put that plastic in? I think Richie Cantor had, had a great analogy for this. And it's basically, I've seen this movie before and I know how it ends. So you're looking at this child, you've done everything you can, and they haven't turned the corner. They haven't made any change. They're still continuing a downward course. You know that ultimately you're going to wind up intubating this child. You make the decision at that point, you're getting the intubation. 
we have to be really careful about the analogy of asthma and comparing it to other disease processes. Whereas I think in most cases, the community setting certainly warrants earlier protection of the airway because not only do you want to stabilize the patient faster, but they're also about to put them in, a, in an ambulance or a helicopter and transport them. And so having that piece of the puzzle sort of managed already can be very helpful. I think the difficulty with asthma, though, is that endotracheal intubation is even less of a benign intervention in asthma. The risks are so high for acute deterioration during the process of transitioning from spontaneous ventilation to positive pressure ventilation that I think we really need to think carefully. And, and whereas earlier in the course, I was not so keen on looking at numbers. This may be a situation where utilizing your serial blood gases from the time you initiate your BiPAP, for example, until you're wondering whether there's any benefit. So maybe, you know, 20 minutes later, 10 minutes later, you want to check to see if you've gotten any progress from a numbers perspective. It may be able to help figure out whether you can give them more time on that non-invasive positive pressure or whether you really do need to assume those risks of intubation and move forward. I think we need to be very, very respectful of the dangers of intubation in these patients. You're counting progress as an improvement in the PCO2. Along with the clinical picture, yes. And this is where I am going to disagree. I fully understand the risks of, of intubating these kids, but the danger goes up exponentially the further this kid gets into trouble. So intubating a child with a pH of 7.2 and an oxygen saturation of 85, that has a risk. Intubating that same child with a pH of 6.9, a PCO2 of 90, and an O2 sat of 80 or 70, it goes off exponentially. And I, I think your odds of successfully doing this without iatrogenic problems is better while the child still has some physiologic reserve. So I think that has to play into it as well. So Al, are you saying that you're relying on numbers? No, I'm physiologically looking at the child. I'm guessing what the reserve is. I think we need to demonstrate before we go down that path that the other interventions you're doing genuinely are not working, though. I think you have to demonstrate that the hypoxemia, the acidosis is not getting better despite your maximal efforts. BiPAP has an excellent track record for reducing the need for intubation. You know, we've seen it ourselves anecdotally. There's some really excellent literature to support its benefit. I think we need to make sure we're giving it enough time to work. I absolutely hear you and I understand what you're saying, of course. We'd rather take a lower risk patient down that path than a higher risk patient, but I'd rather not take that path at all. And I think that BiPAP's track record affords it the respect to give it some time and make sure it's, it's truly not working before we go down that path. If I put that mask on an asthmatic and they're still not looking better, they're still going down that pathway, they're going to have some time on it, but I'm not giving them an extended period. I really don't want this child clinically to get into that spot where they are really just a setup for bad things to happen as soon as we put that tube in or even getting to the point where we're trying to put the tube in. I want to talk about those bad things in a second, but Jeff, since you look at the PCO2, does the end title CO2 help you at all if your shop has the capacity to look at that on a non-intubated patient? I would say absolutely. I think, you know, some data is better than no data. And I think for a given patient, you can certainly trend it. The numbers may not be exactly reflective of what's on the blood gas, which is why I would be very reticent to give you a number at which there's a threshold for intubation or any other intervention in these asthmatics. But certainly a trend can be very helpful. And in the absence of seeing, you know, perfusion difficulties or, you know, other cardiovascular collapse that would affect your end title in different ways, I think if you start seeing the end title returning more towards normal after being quite elevated at the onset, 
uh, I think you can absolutely use that as a proxy for your blood gas, which you can still send you know, periodically to track those numbers as well. But yeah, I think there's a role for it. I'm a huge fan of capnometry, but what we found is when you had somebody on BiPAP and you had the nasal cannula in them, you had so much gas flowing in and out of there that it was difficult to really see what you were measuring. The number itself is useless, but like you said, you're going to follow a trend. The other problem I have though is as this child starts to tire and they're not moving air in and out as well, end tidal CO2 may look like it's getting better you might get fooled a little bit and you always have to look at clinically what the the child looks like in the face of what the numbers are doing. Now, you guys have spoken a lot about the badness that we're trying to avoid that comes with intubation. Can we talk about that badness? So you go to intubate this kid and he loses vitals. He dies during intubation. What happened? What are the possibilities? Let's assume it's, it's a really slick intubation. Tube goes in, start bagging the child, and all of a sudden, their heart rate goes from 160 to 150. And you're going like, okay, we're going in the right direction. 120. And you're like, oh, we've got this made, but it doesn't stop. It just goes down, down, down. Then they go bradyacystolic. The number one thing is you switch them from sucking all this blood into their thoracic cavity with their breathing to all of a sudden now they're on a positive pressure system and and you've lost that ability. So they're probably hypovolemic because they haven't been able to drink and they're breathing so fast. They've lost um, insensible fluids there as well. So you don't have blood return to the heart. So even before I'm going to start the intubation, this kid's getting a fluid bolus. You're going to need some fluid to get some preload back to the heart as well. The other thing is the child's already stacking breaths because they can't exhale. You put the tube in, you got to make sure that their breaths aren't being stacked. In addition to running fluid into them, the first thing I do is take either the vent or the bag valve mask or the NeoT, whatever you're using off of the ET tube and have somebody squeeze their chest. If you've given them a paralytic, they have no muscle tone. And what's going to happen is they've lost that ability to force air past these edematous plugged bronchi. So just have somebody just wraps their arms around them and just squeezes. If it's a big person, it's their whole arms. If it's a smaller child, just their hands and just leans on them and gets all the air out of them that they can. And that also will allow more blood flow back to the right side of the heart. Ultimately, even with the transition to positive pressure, we'd like to try and mimic what these patients were doing on their own, right? We need to give them a lot of extra time to exhale because this is already an obstructive process that we're potentially making worse with positive pressure. We need to give them longer expiratory times, slower respiratory rates, all the things we know that we're terrible at when we intubate probably anybody, but certainly pediatric patients, right? I mean, no matter what PAL says, no matter what ACLS says, you hand somebody a bag of a freshly intubated patient and what do they do? They squeeze away it you know, 25, 30 times a minute. And that's bad for everybody, but it's fatal in these patients, right? For all the reasons that you already talked about. Beyond that point, there's the inherent risk of barotrauma, right? You're taking these already hyperinflated lungs and you're pushing positive pressure in, which is a recipe for a pneumothorax and really can get some horrible physiology there, which would further exacerbate what you're already talking about in terms of decreased venous return and all the other physiology around that heart that's suffering. Nowadays with video plates, so you don't have to keep taking the plate out behind the child, just put the plate behind the child when you start and have the portable x-ray there. So as soon as the tube goes in, if anything changes on the kid, they can just snap the picture and can look at right on the portable x-ray. Neither of you mentioned acidosis. If it's a little bit of a lengthy intubation, do you worry about that? 
There's people who will give bicarb drips to these kids. But if you give bicarb to a child who's acidotic, you're going to generate carbon dioxide. I mean, that's the way it works. The bicarb combines with the hydrogen ion, gives you H2CO3, and then they, that dissociates into water and carbon dioxide. And the, the carbon dioxide has to be exhaled. So even giving them bicarb, if you can't get their lungs to exhale, the carbon dioxide isn't going to work because it's just going to drive the equation back the other way. And there's all that theoretical talk about a paradoxical acidosis in the, in the CNS if you can't blow the carbon dioxide off of them. So I'm not a big fan of giving them bicarb. People say if their pH drops below 6.9, you're kind of up against it. There's a great video that we did once where we, we had an intubated patient it was a DKA patient who was acidotic and they were intubated and they were on the capnometer and the unit people came down and they said they need a bolus of bicarb. So they went and pushed an amp of bicarb. And what you see is the end title goes from somewhere around 28 or so. It goes up to 40 and then gradually goes back down. But what it shows you is you've got to exhale that carbon dioxide if you push an amp of bicarb on these kids. And if they can't exhale it, it's just going to have a paradoxical effect on them. And it hurts me to say it, but I couldn't agree more. I think we need to be very cautious with bicarb when we're not adequately ventilating a patient or they're not adequately ventilating themselves. As Al mentioned, you come up against a point at which you're really just trying to temporize and optimize the conditions for a failing heart. Then sure, if you need to try and, and adjust the pH slightly, but I, I would not rely on that certainly as a preventative measure nor as an early intervention. Aileen, what's happening now is this is like a true professional wrestling thing because the two people who were enemies have now combined <laughs> and they're now going against somebody who was a neutral person or an ally in the past. So yeah, this is working out just fine as far as Jeff and I are concerned. I don't know how you're feeling. I'm feeling like I just visited Mr. Rogers' neighborhood instead of a wrestling match. I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. You know, and you're trying to drag me into it. You guys are trying so hard, but I got some, you know, work to do plastics wise before that happens. No, no, no. You're, you're fine. Every Friday night you see it happen. This is working out just fine. We might as well say, would you be mine? Would you be mine? Would you be my neighbor? All right, let's get back to intubation. So what do you give them? Do you do it awake? Do you paralyze them? Are you terrified when you're paralyzing them? Are you wetting your pants? Like what's going on? Is there a D, all of the above? Yeah, you're terrified, all of the above, but the alternative is not there. I've seen this happen too many times where somebody's afraid to do a procedure and then they wait so long that the procedure is really more difficult to do or the patient has a bad outcome from it. You do whatever you have to do to maximize the option of getting the tube in first. Now, I think a lot of people talk about just giving the kids ketamine to start. And, you know, sometimes the ketamine will help with their breathing and whatnot. I, I've never seen that work. And the one thing I've always found is I'll give the ketamine, bag them up, because if you bag them up, you can a lot of times get their oxygen up there and then just take a peek back yourself. Because sometimes you don't even have to paralyze them. And like Jeff and I talked about earlier, if you can leave their muscle tone intact, that's going to help with their exhalation. So if you can put the tube in with just the ketamine, I think that's useful. A lot of times it's not. And you're just going to take a quick look go back to bagging them, and then go ahead and give your paralytic. Yeah, you know, I think while there may be some theory behind the idea of just ketamine and no paralytic, I think it's probably foolhardy to, to try and rely on that. As I was saying, this is one of those situations you need to commit. 
If you're at the point where you feel the need to transition this kid to mechanical ventilation, positive pressure, you need to commit and make sure the conditions are completely optimized for the procedure itself. You did mention ketamine, which I think is really the only choice as far as a sedative goes in this particular case, despite Al's appropriate observation that he rarely sees that be the magic bullet that turns the kid around. I think certainly it can at least help and certainly not hurt the situation. But I think in general, I'm also moving towards a paralytic. And when you're talking ketamine, Al, if you're going to do a little look-see with just the ketamine, are we talking a sub-dissociative dose or are we talking the full-on two milligrams per kilo IV dose? One milligram per kilo. Look, we give one to two milligrams per kilo all the time to reduce a fracture and the kids don't stop breathing. So it's not going to affect their respiratory drive. If you're going to try and bag them up, you're going to need them to cooperate with you. So giving them a lower dose isn't going to work. And it's also, if, if you're going to try that, all right, I just want to take a quick peek. They're going to need two per kilo. The other thing is, and this I think is really important, they're tired. And that one to two milligrams doesn't affect the kid who's just sitting there with a broken arm is probably going to get you apnea on this kid. I don't think there's any role for sub-dissociative dosing of ketamine. There's been some small studies, but interesting literature that really demonstrate that the smaller doses are fairly useless in terms of staving off the need for intubation and all the other outcomes that we look at in asthma. And again, I'm doing it for the purposes of optimizing the conditions of intubation. I'm going to one and a half to probably two milligrams per kilogram. So Jeff, you're talking about giving ketamine to a patient that you're not necessarily going to intubate. Ketamine as an asthma treatment at a lower dose. And you're saying that has been proven not effective. Proven might be a strong word, but even the smaller studies demonstrate that it's not all that helpful. So I don't consider that as a part of our armamentarium at this point. Anything else that is a part of your armamentarium, heliox, inhaled anesthetics, like let's say you've intubated the kid and it's just still not going well. You've done the manual decompression of the chest. There's not a pneumothorax. What's your next step? What else do you try? You mentioned heliox. I, I don't know how universally available that is. I am sure we have a tank of it somewhere because they sell balloons in the gift shop. So... <laughs> There's, there's got to be a tank somewhere, but I, I would don't know how to mix the blender and stuff for it. I don't consider heliox in, in asthma therapy either. One of the major reasons we're down this path is because of refractory hypoxemia, and we're very limited in terms of oxygen delivery with heliox. You really lose any potential benefit of the laminar flow of heliox with FiO2s greater than 30%, and most of these patients are needing FiO2s greater than 30%. So I don't really consider heliox a useful option either. The inhaled anesthetics can be helpful for sure. Certainly not something we have available in our emergency department. Tell me how I optimize the mechanical ventilator for an asthmatic patient that's required intubation. Always just keeping in mind what you're trying to avoid, and you're trying to avoid barotrauma, avoid further hyperinflation of an obstructive process. So you want to slow down your respiratory rate. You want to look at your I to E ratio and increase your expiratory times. You're watching your plateau pressures, meaning the amount of positive pressure you're delivering, both during the inspiratory and expiratory phase, really in total. The next natural question is, well, what's your metric? What's your outcome? What are you trying to actually accomplish? And it's challenging, right? Because I think the numbers are not necessarily the answer here. Certainly not your PCO2. We want to allow them to be hypercapnic. We want to make sure their pH is sort of within a range of physiologic function for heart in particularly and other organs. But outside of that, you want to avoid chasing down these numbers and trying to normalize, quote unquote, the PCO2 and the pH. The volumes they talk about are six cc's, five, six cc's per kilogram and an I to E ratio of one to four. You want to max out your plateau pressure at 30. 
The other thing I would mention is you really want to make sure you use a cuffed ET tube, no matter how small the kid is. What's better? Is it better to keep them paralyzed or is it better to give them some muscle tone for the expiration? We're a rocronium shot, so they're going to be paralyzed for a good hour or so. We're probably going to be just giving them boluses of ketamine to keep them sedated. If the paralytic wears off and their exhalations do better, so be it. But if the paralytic wears off and you can't get air into them, then you go back to paralyzing them again. All right, that sounds great. Wait, we have to do this right. The next one we do, Jeff and I agree, and we go against you, but you have found an ally that was unsuspected amongst the other wrestlers who are now going to come and join you. So it will be a tag team. Jeff and Al are now one side and you and somebody else who's joined you is the other side. I don't know if we have enough folding chairs to to run in and whack each other over the head with. I was just gonna say, why do I feel like I'm about to get hit by a folding chair? I knew it was only a matter of time. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Aileen, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. This was great. Thank you very much. Smackdown. Summary. In summary, once the decision to intubate the sick pediatric asthma patient is made, some would say the real danger begins. That patient who can't get air out is now having air forced in through positive pressure, so we need to be careful. Using ketamine as an induction agent seems to be a good way to go. Our vent settings need to include volumes of 5 to 6 cc's per kilo, a slow respiratory rate, prolonged expiratory time, so an IDE ratio of about 1 to 4, attention to plateau pressures, and vigilance about barotrauma. Disconnecting the patient from the vent and using manual compression of the chest can be very helpful. And don't forget to use a cuffed ET tube. Our thanks to Eileen, Al, and Jeff for this smackdown, and we look forward to the next round. When's the last time you thought about hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH? Wait, is this a trick question? No, it's a rhetorical question. Just shut up for a second. Ooh, wait, what? If you're like me, it might be med school-like studying for step one. All I can really remember is that there's a lot of inflammation in high ferritin levels. And I always thought this was more of an ICU diagnosis, not something that we need to diagnose in the ED. I'm here with Skylar Lentz, an ED and critical care physician. Skylar Lentz, you're clear for takeoff. Skylar, why is HLH important for us to think about in the ED? It's important because a delay in diagnosis leads to a delay in treatment and worse outcomes for our patients. And this is a disease where the mortality is already really high, somewhere between 50 and 75%. Now, it is rare, but this is something we'll all see at some point in our practice. It is really easy to miss it at first, and we might mistake it for sepsis or that really sick patient and we couldn't figure out why. But if we put this on our differential and recognize the exam findings, the lab abnormalities, and the suggestive history, we can get the ball rolling on treatment. This definitely sounds like something that we need to think about in the ED. But before we look into how we can diagnose this condition, I think we need to cover a little bit on the pathophysiology. Pathophys. Skylar, what are the different types of HLH and what's the underlying cause for all this badness that we see in these patients? There are two types of HLH, primary and secondary. Primary is most commonly seen in pediatrics from an underlying genetic defect. Secondary HLH is what we should be worried about and is more relevant to our practice and the type seen in adults. The badness starts with some underlying physiologic stressor like a malignancy or an infection. 
This along with abnormal natural killer cell activity that normally keeps our immune system in check can lead to a hyperinflammatory response and overactivation of those T cells and macrophages. The T cells and macrophages can phagocytize other cell lines, leading to the classic finding of cytopenias. The hyperinflammatory state can also cause a massive release in cytokines and multi-organ inflammation and injury. History and exam. My issue is that HLH seems to come from this immune system going haywire, but it sounds like it's going to present really similar to some other conditions that we see definitely on a more common basis. You had mentioned sepsis, but I would also think about severe COVID, liver failure, and even toxic ingestion. What should we look for on our history and exam that can really make us think about HLH? On your history, it's important to ask about malignancies like leukemias or lymphomas, or a recent infection. Also ask about immunosuppression like transplant or underlying autoimmune disease. A study looking at this found that 35% of patients with HLH had a known malignancy, and 40% had an infection. HIV and Epstein-Barr virus were the two most common viral triggers, so ask about HIV risk factors or test for it. On our exam, you're going to see a critically ill patient in front of you with signs of systemic inflammation. The most common feature is fever, seen in over 90%. On your exam, you might pick up splenomegaly that's seen in another 80%. You may also find hepatomegaly or indirect findings of cytopenias, coagulopathies, or hepatitis. The patient may also have CNS abnormalities like altered mental status, seizures, or they might have pulmonary symptoms or hypoxemia. Shock and multi-organ failure are also common and things you should be looking for on your clinical exam. Fever, organomegaly, multi-organ failure. Again, these are fairly nonspecific. There are definitely other conditions that can cause these findings. Labs. What about labs here? I'm usually not a big fan of using labs as a rule in test, but again, I'm just looking for something that can help suggest it. Is there any one lab finding or set of labs that should make me think HLH? It would be nice if there was an HLH test, but one doesn't exist. So we have to look for several lab abnormalities. And generally, you'll find a high ferritin, cytopenias, coagulopathies, abnormal liver enzymes, and high triglycerides. The CBC will show two abnormal cell lines, like anemia, thrombocytopenia, or leukopenia. The liver enzymes in bilirubin are usually elevated. The macrophage activation that we talked about can cause fibrinolysis and give a DIC-like picture on your labs. So you'll see an elevated D-dimer, a low fibrinogen, and prolonged coagulation tests. The ferritin level is commonly used in HLH diagnostic criteria and is most often greater than 500 micrograms per liter. But many times it's severely elevated. In the cases I've seen, it's been above 5,000. If you check triglycerides, they'll also be high. You had mentioned a lot of labs there. The cytopenias, the liver enzymes, coagulation panel abnormalities, and even a ferritin level if you have that available. I'm looking for something that's going to make this easy for me in the ED. Are there any clinical scoring systems or maybe calculators that I could use that keeps track of everything that we see in these patients? Our specialists will use diagnostic criteria guidelines to diagnose HLH. They'll use the HLH 2004 criteria or the modified 2009 criteria. But for us at the bedside, the H score can be really helpful. The H score you can just plug into MDCalc. It assigns a probability of HLH based on lab and clinical features. But the problem with this and the diagnostic criteria are they also rely on labs that we can't obtain readily in the emergency department, like a bone marrow biopsy or specialized testing like a soluble IL-2 receptor 
low natural killer cell activity, or other specialized tests. Now, I had mentioned the ferritin. A ferritin is really important. Some experts suggest that a ferritin greater than 2,000, along with a suggestive history like the fever or splenomegaly, should prompt further HLH evaluation. Summary. That was a lot. Let me see if I can bring all this together into an approach for us. First, I'm going to look for those red flags on my history and exam. Fever, splenomegaly or hepatomegaly, maybe some CNS or pulmonary dysfunction, and then finally a history of malignancy or infection. Next, I'm going to look for those lab findings. Cytopenias, the elevated liver enzymes, and maybe the coagulopathies. If I think HLH could be present based on my history, exam, and these initial labs, then I'm going to expand my evaluation and obtain an albumin, fibrinogen, a ferritin level, and maybe even a triglyceride level if I have that available. While I'm doing this evaluation and getting these labs, obviously these patients are going to be sick, they're toxic appearing, and sepsis is one of the underlying causes of HLH. I'm going to give the patient broad-spectrum antibiotics, as well as my normal sepsis resuscitation measures. I probably don't have the definitive treatment these patients need in the emergency department, so I'm going to speak with my hematologist who might also provide some other recommendations. And I'm also going to speak with my intensivist because these patients are going to need the ICU. Skylar, does this seem right or did I leave something out? I like your approach. It's not something you're going to diagnose during the ED stay, but it's something that you should have on your differential diagnosis. And when you think you might have a patient that has it, alert your intensivist or hematologist. If your hospital doesn't have a hematologist, you should transfer the patient to a place that does so that they can have definitive testing and treatment. And the treatment should begin early for the best possible outcome. And it focuses on managing the underlying condition, whether it's a malignancy or an infection, and some more specialized testing like steroids, JAK inhibitors, IL-2 antagonist, and etoposide. Skylar, thanks for your great work on this. I know I feel much more comfortable taking care of these patients, and now this is definitely on my radar. Wait, what? Let's get into it, July EMA, ultra, 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 let's do it. Ultra. Abstract one. This was about sewage, sudden, unexplained infant death. There's about 3,500 infant deaths that are basically sleep-related. And, you know, 20, more than 20 years ago, there was this safe sleeping campaign and there was a dramatic reduction, but it sort of leveled off. And Sunday just basically wanted to use this paper to remind us that we are a place where we can do some education for parents of very tiny kids and tell them the safe practices. And that is keep your baby on the back when they sleep for naps or at night, put them on a firm surface, keep the bedding away, such as blankets and pillows and that kind of stuff, because that can be a problem. And you can share a room with the baby but do not share a bed because those four things have been associated with you know, suffocation, sudden infant death syndrome. So just remember that this is part of your public health job. You can go to the CDC and other websites and read more about exactly how to give this information to families. But of these kids in this study that had actually died, the vast majority of them had at least one unsafe sleeping practice and many of them had multiple unsafe sleeping practices, which if a healthcare worker had intervened, maybe could have prevented some of these deaths. Abstract two. Abstract two that they covered is also sort of a public health thing. It's covert brain infarction in emergency department patients, prevalence, clinical correlates, and treatment opportunities. The point of covering this paper was to remind us that when you have incidental findings, in this case, it was incidental old stroke that the patient may not have known about. It's important to 
tell people that. So you got the head CT because you're worried about a brain bleed because they fell off their bicycle and it turns out they've had an old stroke. It's important for us to get into the practice of saying, look, you've had an old stroke. What are your risk factors? Maybe we can do some modification. You should follow up with primary care. And this, Mike, I think brought up that it's also true for like EKGs. You do an EKG and you don't see anything acute, but you do see old Q ways that suggest this person's had an old MI. We are not very good traditionally at saying to people, look, looks like you may have had a myocardial infarction in the past. Tell me, do you smoke? What are your other risk factors? Maybe we should modify some of those things to prevent the next one. So I think this is good to remind ourselves that we are not just in emergency medicine, we are also in public health. And there can be lots of arguments about how much of that stuff we should be doing. But for the low-hanging fruit, like this stuff, we're saying, you know what, you should probably put down the cigarette because you've already had a heart attack. Or in this case, a stroke. Abstract three. Abstract three, really important. So you got that person, you're like, oh, I think this could be a subarachnoid hemorrhage. You get the CT and it's negative. What do you do next? You can do an LP. Or you can do a CT angiogram. Now, some people say you don't need to do the LP if the CT scan's negative, right? But let's say it's past six hours, you're a very high-risk patient. The reason not to do a CT angiogram is that a lot of people have asymptomatic aneurysms, and this headache had nothing to do with it. That's the reason not to do an angiogram. They found 3% incidence that there was um, you know, aneurysms in there, which probably had nothing to do with the person's headache. And if you talk to neurosurgeons, they will often go, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll coil it with all the complications that can go from that. So as Sanjay rightly points out, this is a shared decision-making thing, whether to LP, whether to do a CT angiogram. But just know, it is not a zero-sum game. If you do CT angiograms on lots of people, then you'll find lots of aneurysms that mean nothing. Abstract four. Abstract four is an important one, and it's uh, does hospitalization admission for chest pain, improve patient outcomes for emergency department evaluation of suspected acute coronary syndrome. Here is the idea that once you've ruled somebody out in the emergency department, is there really a need to admit them to hospital or can they get the rest of any workup as an outpatient? This was a Kaiser study. It was complicated in its methodology and it wasn't like a randomized trial, but it suggested that on the margins that these people who aren't really high risk or aren't really low risk probably don't benefit from being admitted to the hospital. This is not the best of the studies, and there are certainly much more ongoing about this, like which patients really do need to be admitted? Does that admission really change their outcome? So if you're in a system like this was at Kaiser, they found on that margin that it wasn't very helpful. Kaiser is very different to a lot of the hospitals here in the US. These patients have follow-up, they've got primary care, so that may not be true at your county hospital. But increasingly, we are questioning the utility of this sort of observation period for patients that are ruling out in the emergency department who don't obviously have some other high-risk feature. Abstract 5. High-flow nasal O2 for intubation hasn't really been shown to significantly reduce the number of hypoxic episodes when you're intubating people, probably because you're pretty good at it and you don't have too many hypoxic episodes. But this study, which was Abstract 5, which was pre- and apneic high-flow oxygenation for rapid-sequence intubation in the emergency department, a multi-center trial which was in the annals of the Academy of Medicine in Singapore, somehow they found this article, Really well done, randomized. They did 60 liters a minute versus 15 liters a minute. And while overall they didn't find a difference, Sanjay questions whether we should be doing this study specifically just in high-risk patients to see if there's a difference between that group rather than overall. Because again, overall, most patients are not going to have a significant desaturation episode. But anyway, they did it. Looked like it was safe. 60 liters versus 15. And a lot of people now have experience with very high flow rates of oxygen in COVID. But uh, this well-done study did not show on its face a big difference between the two. Abstract six. Abstract six was a good one, really good one. 
And so this was positive signs of physical examination are not always indications for endotracheal intubation in patients with facial burns. So we know this clinically is a big deal, right? So you've got somebody with potential facial burn. You're worried about inhalational injury, particularly if you're transporting the patient, they could get worse en route. So we've used things like singed nasal hairs and little crap in the mouth and hoarseness of voice and shortness of breath. And it turns out those things are predictive to a degree, but they're not great. So they probably overcall it lots of the time. Shortness of breath was actually the only one that independently predicted that you'd have a lower down burn. But Mike's point, and I think it's a good one, is they're still good enough if you've got a long transport time to say, look, you've got a little sins nasal hair and uh, you're a bit short of breath, I'm just tubing you. Even though that might be wrong 50% of the time once they get to the trauma center, better to be wrong that way than to be wrong with, well, since it's only going to indicate a lower down burn 50% of the time, I'm not going to worry about it. No, no, let's overdo it if you're doing transport. There is room to sit and hang out and watch them if you're already at the tertiary referral center. Abstract 8. Abstract 8 to me is big, huge, and large, and it is tunneled peritoneal catheter versus repeat paracentesis for recurrent ascites, a cost analysis, and it was in cardiovascular interventional radiology. So if you work in large centers here in the United States, it's probably true all over the world, you will see a lot of people with end-stage liver disease, usually alcoholic, with significant ascites that come in night after night after night and get large volume paracentesis. I love it. I think it's one of the most fun procedures to do. They drink all the beer and then you put a needle into their belly and you bring all the beer out. Well, at least that's what it looks like. But it is time consuming and they do get infected occasionally and uh, it would be best not to do this, right? So this study is basically like doing peritoneal dialysis. They put a tunnel catheter in just like a peritoneal dialysis catheter and had the patient drain off the fluid themselves versus coming to you and you putting a needle in and draining off 10 liters. And they found, although not a great study, that this was better. You know, they had uh, better outcomes and they, and they presented to the immune department much less frequently. So this is kind of cool, not a great study, didn't follow them for very long. But I bring it up because no doubt there'll be more of these studies and you might actually start to see these patients and don't freak out. It's like, yeah, this is how I drain my peritoneal fluid from my liver disease, just like my friend over here with his peritoneal dialysis. It's such an incredibly interesting idea. Hopefully bigger studies are coming, but you might run across this. Abstract 9. Abstract 9, I was so excited about, then they shot it down. So it's non-inferiority of intranasal ketamine compared to intravenous morphine for musculoskeletal pain relief among older patients in the ER randomized trial in agent aging. And they basically said, hey, this low-dose ketamine, squirt it up the nose, just as good as morphine. Tastes great, less filling, wonderful. But unfortunately, Mike and Sanjay say, look, they've been following this literature very closely the last few years. And actually, there's been a trend away from intranasal ketamine in these circumstances. So if you want to take it on, on whole, the jury's still kind of out as to whether this stuff is as good as morphine, as safe as morphine. So I was a bit upset by that because I see intranasal ketamine and I'm like, yeah, baby, I just run out into the waiting room and just start spraying that stuff around him. One for you and grandma and grandpa. You're saying, hang on a minute, son. We need better studies. Abstract 10. Okay, let's finish off with this bad boy. And it is severe bradycardia from severe hyperkalemia, patient characteristics, outcomes, factors associated with hemodynamic support. <gasps> American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So you've been taught that as your potassium goes up, you start to get tented T waves, and then you prolong your QRS, and then you get widening, and then you get bradycardia and you die. Well, this is a limited study, but says, just so you know, you can have junctional rhythms. You can have no tenting of your... T waves, you can just have sinus bradycardia, and that can all 
be caused by hyperkalemia. And there is not a clear progression of these EKG changes. There's not a clear correlation between those and what your potassium is and if you're going to go into a cardiac arrest in five minutes. So it's a really important teaching point and one to remember. In any bradycardic patient, think about hyperkalemia. Even if they don't have the classic hyperkalemia EKG things, it can be from hyperkalemia. You can have normal looking T waves and you can be junctional, narrow complex, and that can be from hyperkalemia. So just keep that look. And that's Mel And that's your ultra, 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 boom, summary, out. Thank you. Thank you. Can I get your autograph? You clearly are. Ultra, 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 let's do it. So there's no point in me paddling on, so it's over. Finished. Complete. Bow. Tied. Tied. Done. Okay. Done. Mic dropped. Out. Completely over at this point. Done. All right, this is getting ridiculous. Talk to you next month. Now we're done. But can you be sure? I mean, if you've been listening this long, you probably want to see how far I'm going to take this. But um, I do need to shut the hell up now. This is just immature. But I had fun with it. Herbert out. Herbert out. Herbert out. We're back with part two of Critical Care Mailbag. Scott Weingott. Critical Care. Mailbag. Trach emergencies. Part two. Well, then let's get to our second problem, which is bleeding, which I'll be honest, Scott, this is a little bit more worrisome to me. The patient is now sent from their rehab facility, nursing home, wherever they're coming from. And the report is that there was some bleeding either from the trach site or around the trach site. Let's go through your algorithm here of what you're going to do to address that. Okay, well, I mean, the big bugbear here is uh, the tracheonomatic fistula, which is an insanely rare situation that every ED doc dreads. And chances are you will not have a single one of these in your career. But that is unfortunately the thing that's in the back of our minds every time this patient comes in. Because for the most part, the bleeding you're going to see, it's just erosion of like a tiny little vessel at a site or a little bit lower down in the soft tissue. That's really garbage. If you have the service that placed the trach, I think it's worthwhile to just let them know they have a trach patient that they placed the trach in who has some bleeding. And if I was the one who placed the trach, uh, when I used to do that at the bedside, I, I'd want to know if, I, if one of my patients was there. So that's one thing. Now, in many places, that's not going to be available. It was placed at a different hospital. You don't have any services overnight. There's no ENT. There's no OMFS. So you're on your own. If it's a venous ooze, it's usually going to be okay. Now, the dreaded situation is the herald bleed of a tracheonomatic fistula that are super subtle that is in a trach that isn't fresh. Now, the tracheonomatic fistula generally happens between three days and six weeks from the placement of the trach. That's, that's the, the, the usual, like that's for the bell curve, you're hitting almost every bit of these tracheonomatic fistulas, which already have become exceedingly rare because the predominance was much higher when we had much more rigid, painful trach appliances. The ones now are quite soft. The balloons are low pressure balloons. So you're, it's even rarer. So if you have a patient who's had the trach for a year who presents, it's exceedingly low risk for tracheonomic official. And yet you still have to decide in your head, is this that one case in a million I have to work up? If it's a small venous ooze, I usually feel pretty good for a trach outside of that six week window that this is not a herald bleed. This is just some excoriation, and we don't have to worry about it too much. Let's pretend for the sake of this argument, Swami, that a patient presented four weeks out from a trach or, or even less. I mean, the real 
big, big time is one to two weeks after trach placement. But let's say you had a patient who was came from the rehab, they were sent there, and it's two weeks after their trach was placed. Now, this is going to be a hard situation. The situation where it is just that small bleed, they need a workup probably for tracheonomic official, but you don't need to do anything crazy right now if the bleeding stopped. What about the scenario where they come in that same time period, but now they're bleeding copiously and it's bright red? So this is the dreaded situation. The first move you're going to make is you need to get something cuffed into that airway. Now, if their trach itself is already cuffed, then you're already in good shape. If it's an uncuffed trach, then you either need to pull it and put in a cuffed trach or what may be the better thing to do if they don't have a cuff trach is to actually just intubate them from above. Because a lot of the stuff we're going to do next, if this doesn't work, is going to require intubation from above. So one of those two things, and then you're going to overinflate that cuff. So, and I've been amazed at how much gas these cuffs will actually take before they rupture. But essentially what you want is you want that uh, pressure testing balloon, the blottable balloon in your fingers to be rigid. Like that, that thing should be hard, whatever that takes. Usually it's going to be an extra, you know, 10 or 15 cc's of uh, gas to uh, air, in this case I should call it gas, to actually overinflate that cuff. And since the cuff itself usually sits right at that juncture where the trachea meets the innominate artery, that alone in like, I think over 80% of the cases in the literature I've seen will temporize the problem. If you're going to intubate these patients from above because they have an uncuffed trachea, leave the trachea in until you actually hit it with your ET tube, because you know if it turns out to be a difficult airway, I'd rather keep that trach patent until I know that I'm going to be able to intubate them. And so once you, you hit it, you take the trach out, you'll be able to see the ET tube passing the actual stomacite. And you put it you know, about you know where you normally put it, it's going to put it in perfect position because it's going to be at the very low portion of the trachea, but above the carina. And that is exactly where you want the balloon. That's where the trach balloon would have sat. So yeah, no, it's going to be in perfect position for what you're going to do next, which is overinflation. So a patient coming about a couple of weeks after trach placement with a copious amount of blood, I have three possible maneuvers. One is overinflate the balloon on that trach if they have a cuff trach, replace the trach with a cuff trach if they don't have one and overinflate the balloon or intubate from above with a cuffed tube and overinflate the balloon. All of these creating pressure on where that bleeding is coming from to help to tamponade it. And you said about 80% of them will stop bleeding with that maneuver alone. Absolutely. Now, if that doesn't work, now you're, you're in a really not fun zone. At this point, they need to be intubated from above. And what you're going to do next is, and I don't think this is taught very well in emergency medicine, because the idea people have is that you're going to stick your finger into the stoma and do compression up against the sternum. But what they don't understand is if you put your finger in the stoma, where, your finger, where does your finger lie? It lies in the trachea. And that's not going to work very well. What you actually want to do is you want to put your finger in, you know, like a centimeter and actually dissect out, if it is a mature trach, that pretracheal space. And you actually want your finger lying between the trachea and overlying the innominate artery and then push that up against the sternum. Will it work if your finger's in the trachea? Yeah, probably it'll work somewhat, but you, you have the risk of injuring the trachea and making the already present hole that caused the tracheonominate fistula far worse and making the operative repair worse. And so I, in an ideal world, what you'd really want to do is actually dissect your finger anterior to the trachea. That gives us the process of what we're going to do. And obviously at that point, if you have either 
overinflated your balloon and tamponaded that bleeding, or you're tamponading it directly with your finger, if you haven't already called for your surgeons to come and help you out, you, you need to make sure that they are on their way and they're taking that patient to the OR because what we're doing is just a temporizing maneuver. It's not fixing the patient. You need airway toilet, you need a massive transfusion activation, and you need a stat call to the OR. Now, the more difficult diagnostic scenario is when you suspect, could this be a tracheonomic official, but they're not massively exsanguinating? What the hell do you do there? Perfect. That's exactly where I wanted to go next, because I feel like that's the more common. They had some bleeding at the rehab site. They're sending them to you and you see them and you're like, I don't see any bleeding going on. And obviously the danger would be like, well, there's no bleeding, send them back. But what process should we be doing to evaluate that trach and that bleeding? So the easy answer is if the service who either at has placed the trach or has taken responsibility for evaluating trachs, usually ENT at most places, is available, just let them deal with it. And they can make uh, the smart or not so smart decisions based on their judgment, because there's really not good answers sometimes here as to what to do. If they pull the trach out and find the little bleeding vessel and cauterize it, well, then you're done. That's not a tracheonomic official. Um, but many times with these herald bleeds, you, you don't find a source of the bleeding because it, it was a, a temporized bleed lower down and you can't find it. Now, what should happen in an ideal world? Well, if there's a high suspicion for tracheonomic official, the real move is to do bronchoscopy in the OR to directly visualize the site throughout the entire trachea at any point where there could have been a breakdown. Now, does that happen every time? No. Sometimes they don't do it. Can you do CT angiography? We don't know. You definitely couldn't with the generation of scanners when most of the literature on tracheonomic officials were being done. It just didn't work. Our scanners are so much better now that you will see in the literature sometimes a CT angiography workup for evaluating this. I'd be reluctant to do that on my own as an ED doc. If ENT wants to play it that way and they're taking responsibility for the workup and they're like, just get a CTA. If it's negative, they could go back. That's fine. But that really, it's a cutting edge idea that has not been well proven. Let's say you're alone and there's no one coming to the bedside. What to do? Well, if it's a mature track and the patient has upper airway patency, put a non-rebreather mask or a nasal cannula up on their nose, pull the trach and see. If you could see skin bleeding again, then I feel very safe that this is not a tracheonomic official. If you could find a site that is a clear indication for why that's happening, then I feel better. If you have the skills at rhinolaryngoscopy, you want to throw something down there and see. And it, it's pretty obvious. You know, you, if you have a completely clean anterior trachea wall, then you can feel pretty good about this. But most people don't have those skills. I don't think there's much shame if you have doubt to just holding the patient till morning until you can have a surgical subspecialty or gen surge, depending on your department, whoever uh, manages trachs, see the patient before they go back. If you pull the trach and you see that little bit of skin bleeding and you take care of that, let's say you, you cauterize it, you just put some pressure on it and it resolves, would you still get that CT angiogram just to feel a little bit more comfortable with saying that there isn't anything else more dangerous going on? I don't think so, especially if they're outside of that window. You know, if this is a trach that's been in there for two years and they're skin bleeding, no, that, that would be a waste of, a, of an imaging study, I think. Look, you know, very much like posterior TIA exists, but if we start searching for it on every patient with persistent dizziness, it's going to be game over for the healthcare system because- that is a, you know, absolute, like, insanely rare situation. I think if you start looking on mature trachs for tracheonomic official every time they come in with a little bit of venous bleeding, uh, that's not going to be a good use of our resources. Summary. Again, I think we have now a little bit of an approach of what to do. That danger window is up to about six weeks. 
after the trach is placed. After that, it becomes exceedingly rare. And like you said, with the newer tech, with the newer devices that we're putting in, these tracheonomic fistulas are very uncommon in general. We're going to start by overinflating the balloon or placing an ET tube and overinflating the balloon to create a direct tamponade. If that doesn't work, we can place a finger. And again, we don't want to just place it into the trachea and create pressure. We actually want to dissect a little bit in between the trachea and then actually put our finger and compress that anominant artery up against the sternum to cause tamponade. Obviously, we need our consultants on board to help with those kind of patients. In the patient who's not massively bleeding, then we can talk to our consultants and come up with a plan together, whether that be a bronch in the operating room with that service or a CT angio. A lot of that is going to depend on your consultants, but that gives us an approach of how to manage these patients. And Scott, I, th I think that gives us a little bit more comfort when these patients hit the door of what to do and how to take care of them. Absolutely. And check out that chapter written by Justin, and I think it really will be a nice companion to everything we discussed. Absolutely. All right, everybody, welcome to this month's mailbag. Let's hop on over to the home station at Malheur Junction in Oregon. Sounds like a beautiful place. If you come to Oregon, there's a town called Malheur Junction. And if you go look around, you might say, hey, what's the function? And Swami, you've got a listener letter for us. I always like towns that end in junction. They're <laughs> yes. always beautiful places every single time. And we do. We have a great listener letter. Letter one. Talking about intranasal ketamine, which we have discussed a couple of times very recently on the show. And the listener's question is really centered around this dreaded complication of laryngospasm. And essentially what the listener is asking is, is it a good idea to give intranasal ketamine for a procedure when laryngospasm is a possibility and we've got no IV to manage that laryngospasm if it comes up? Well, we kicked that question over to our resident ketamine guru, Ruben Strayer. And he got to the bottom of laryngospasm and ketamine and what we need to do to take care of it. Laryngospasm is an infrequently encountered, a little bit mysterious, but important airway problem where the vocal cords spasm closed, obstructing the airway, which can, of course, be dangerous. So it makes sense to get uneasy at the thought of doing procedural sedation with ketamine, a drug that is associated with laryngospasm, without an IV, because vascular access is such a central priority in resuscitation. But I think we can address this concern from a few angles. Firstly, the original studies on emergency department-based procedural sedation with ketamine were Steve Green's pediatric studies using IM ketamine for PSA in children without an IV, and these studies unequivocally demonstrated safety. It is absolutely not required to place an IV line for PSA using ketamine. I would go further and suggest that in kids getting ketamine PSA who don't already have a line, Placing one before the start of the procedure is usually suboptimal care. If you want a line for a longer procedure or any sort of perceived additional risk, this is best done in kids after the IM shot, which will make obtaining IV access much easier and, of course, spares the child from the trauma of being a pincushion. But in any case, we know that ketamine-based procedural sedation in kids is safely done without a line. Let's talk a little bit more about laryngospasm. Laryngospasm is an airway obstruction, and it has a lot in common with the obstruction we often see in obese patients who are sedated and laying flat. And I mention that to de-escalate the fear that folks have of ketamine-related laryngospasm. Yes, it happens. Yes, it can be dangerous. Yes, it almost always is effectively managed with routine airway maneuvers that emergency providers do all the time. Laryngospasm usually manifests with noisy respirations, similar to what you hear with obstructive sleep apnea and diminished airflow. 
at its most severe and dangerous, laryngospasm can cause a complete airway obstruction where there is no noise and no air movement. But this is distinctly uncommon and generally does not happen suddenly. You will generally notice the partial obstruction before complete obstruction occurs if it occurs at all. Of course, the first, second, and third priorities in procedural sedation are meticulous attention to ventilation, hopefully with continuous capnography, so that you can immediately notice hypoventilation from any cause. And the way to manage laryngospasm mirrors how you should manage hypoventilation of any cause. And you may not know the cause, which is okay. Some of you have probably managed laryngospasm without realizing it. Firstly, everyone who is receiving PSA should have at least nasal cannula oxygen and ideally face mask oxygen as well. So if hypoventilation is detected, apply oxygen if that's not already happening. Make sure the patient is properly positioned, that the patient is as upright as feasible, and that the head and neck are in proper alignment. We call this a chin lift. And a simple chin lift will relieve airway obstruction in many cases. The second and probably most critical maneuver is a jaw thrust. I have seen laryngospasm about a dozen times in 20 years, mostly in kids, and in every case, the laryngospasm resolved with a good jaw thrust. Jaw thrust has to be done correctly. It's often done incorrectly, and that means that both hands are behind the ramus of the mandible, forcing the mandible forward anterior to the maxilla so that the patient assumes an underbite. Are there significant secretions in the airway? If so, this is the time to gently suction them out. And one interesting maneuver that has little science behind it but is often discussed, especially in anesthesia circles, is laryngospasm notch pressure. This is sometimes called Larson's maneuver. You do this by jamming a finger at the very sensitive part of the skull behind the ear just in front of the mastoid, and you just dig your finger up and in like you're trying to poke the brain. And this has been touted to break laryngospasm by stimulating the superior cervical sympathetic ganglion, but it's just as likely that it works by providing a very painful stimulus. You can do this as you apply a forceful jaw thrust, usually with your middle finger, just jam it up and in there. Now, if you've done all those things, the patient is well-positioned with a good jaw thrust, and the patient is still significantly obstructed. Positive pressure ventilation is going to be effective in relieving obstruction and every other cause of hypoventilation in almost every case. Make sure you are using optimal bag mask technique, which is two hands on the mask, two thumbs down on the mask, with the rest of the fingers of both your hands gathering the jaw into an aggressive jaw thrust with someone else gently, slowly bagging. Do not do single-person bagging. That is for stable patients in the OR, not for emergency medicine. Compressing the bag is not a skill procedure. There is always someone else who can bag. RT, the nurse, the patient in an adjacent gurney. If you're completely out of options, even a medical student can squeeze the bag. You need to have two hands on the mask to effect an assertive jaw thrust and an effective mask seal. Most of us will never encounter a PSA case where laryngospasm is not broken by positive pressure ventilation. In the rare, rare case that you cannot ventilate after all these steps, you will have to paralyze and intubate. If you don't have a line, you can give succinylcholine 4 milligrams per kilogram IM. The need for intramuscular delivery is possibly the only remaining indication for sucks. I advocate for having a paralytic in vials at bedside with a syringe and needle whenever PSA is happening, and if you're doing it without a line, it's reasonable for that paralytic to be succinylcholine, which is better absorbed intramuscularly compared to rocuronium. We do not know what causes laryngospasm or makes it more likely. Kids are clearly at higher risk, probably because they have smaller airways. Oral instrumentation and excessive oral secretions are thought to be predisposing. It will not happen in subdissociative doses of ketamine, so you don't have to worry about laryngospasm if you're using ketamine for analgesia. 
It can happen with other sedatives as well, not just ketamine. But the prospect of laryngospasm should not dissuade you from using ketamine as your PSA agent or using ketamine without a line because you're ready to manage laryngospasm if it arises. Thanks, Ruben, for the fantastic review of ketamine and laryngospasm. And of course, thanks to the listener for sending the question in. And don't forget to keep those letters coming. If you come to Oregon, there's a town called Mauer Junction. And if you go look around, you might say, hey, what's the function? Turns out it's not a town. It's more like an intersection. Train tracks are all around. That's when you make the connection. Mauer Junction's about the trains. That's why junction is in the name. A junction is when two tracks Okay, meet. enough with the tracks. We understand how the tracks work, all right? All right. It's not the only thing that Mauer Junction is known for, is it? All right. Isn't there a cave there? You guys didn't talk about the cave that was used by the Freemasons. You didn't even mention it. Nothing like that even got mentioned. Mega, 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 monster. Like that? (laughs) All right, welcome everyone to our mega summary for August 2022. This was a really great month with a lot of great clinical teaching pearls. And Swami, why don't you kick us off? Mega kick. Absolutely. Yeah, so our first segment was in the critical care mailbag talking about tracheostomy complications. Jen, we recently talked about a case of tracheostomy complications, which spurred Scott to say, you know, let's have a nice systematic approach, which of course I said, no, 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 Scott, we've already done that. And he said, no, 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 go back. We have it. And so now we get into all of the ins and outs of dealing with that tracheotomy patient and the emergencies really fall into two categories, the airway-related issues and the bleeding-related issues. And so we get into all of those things, starting with maturity of the trach track, which we talked about as well in our case. It's at seven to 10 days. Seven to 10 days after placement, that trach track is mature, which means that if the trach comes out, you can replace it. You can probably do that procedure blindly, although if you have fiber optics, always nice to be able to use that, but you don't have to have fiber optics. And Jen, the truth is that we rarely see these patients in that seven to 10 day window. We're usually seeing them after the trach has been in place for a little while, which gives us a little more security when we have to change them over. And from there, Scott gets into respiratory distress, how to manage that, remembering that most of these patients with tracheostomies can still be intubated from above if you have to. Obviously, that doesn't really hold true if they have a laryngectomy, but we didn't really get into that class of patients. So if they have a patent upper airway, remember that any airway issue can still be managed by going from above, especially if the patient didn't have a specific obstructive feature that made them place the trach in the first place. So we get into the ins and outs of how to manage when that trach becomes dislodged or when it becomes blocked or when it becomes fractured and how we can take care of those patients. And then we move to the bleeding complications, which give me a lot of pause because while they are rare, the tracheonominate fistula is what we are all worried about. So Scott talks about the possibility of the herald bleed where a patient has a little bit of bleeding, but then they look pretty good when you see them, how to manage that, what imaging is necessary there. And what Scott comes back to over and over again is that you really want to get the consultant that placed that trach on board with management of that patient because imaging isn't always going to be the way to go. Sometimes these patients really need a direct look with a fiber optic scope by the specialist to be sure that there isn't some massive bleeding complication that's about to come up. And then, of course, we also get into what to do when that massive bleeding actually happens, how to compress that bleeding until the patient can get to the OR. And Jan, I definitely felt that between our piece and then this longer piece, I feel a little more comfortable taking care of those trach patients. Yeah, this is such an important area to review and to be familiar with, because if you're not familiar with it, which I remember being a resident and not knowing a lot about this, and a patient came in with a trach emergency, 
And I was so scared. And once you learn about it and you actually get some experience, it's not as scary because you realize, A, they, they have an airway most of the time that I just have to troubleshoot. And B, you know, these emergencies in terms of like the tracheonominate fistula is something we should know about, but most trach bleeding is not that. We just have to know, you know, we always have to know about the worst first and rule the bad thing out, but a lot of it isn't that. And RT knows a lot about these. So, you know, lean heavily on your RT who has a lot of experience with these to help you. Smackdown. All right, Jen, from the trachs, we then move to asthma. We've talked a lot about adult asthma. This is a nice peds section with Eileen and Al, and they bring in Jeff Seiden to get into all the ins and outs of pediatric asthma. Absolutely. We divided this into a part one and part two, part one being sort of all of the things you do for bad asthma in a pediatric patient before you intubate to try to stave off the intubation. And part two is really about once you do decide that you have to intubate them, you know, what are the things to know there? So just so you know, this was actually a second round of SmackDown. The round one was back in October 2021, where Al and Jeff did a peds fever SmackDown. And now they're back to talk about peds asthma. So they start off talking about what is the kitchen sink in bad pediatric asthma. And that includes the nebulized treatments, the things, the beta agonists that we're very familiar with, the anticholinergics, but also being aggressive upfront, going with things like IM epinephrine, steroids in an IV route, magnesium, they're both on board with that, also given IV, and you can even use nebulized epi. The other thing they mention is terbutaline. That's also something that's usually easily found and you can give as well parenterally. It can even be given sub-Q and small bolus doses can help temporize. They review all of the doses for us that are really familiar. And then they talk about what are the diagnostics that you need besides the good clinical exam and good clinical observation. And they kind of debate whether or not checking a pH, for example, on a VBG is actually that helpful because really it's not that helpful. You're not following numbers. You're following the kid's clinical presentation. How is their work of breathing? Are they starting to tire out? How is their mental status? And in terms of another number that we don't really care about is the hypercarbia, the PCO2. Al argues that you're going to see that clinically. If they get lethargic and sleepy and they're starting to tire out, that's what you're really looking for. You don't want to follow some number. So those are really important take-home points. Now, the next part that they have a smackdown about, which I found really interesting, which was on the issue of high-flow nasal cannula. Now, Al is a big proponent of this. He says, put it on early, help them out. And Jeff is not as big of a fan of it, hasn't seen as much success with it. And they talk about really the timing probably of the intervention matters. They both agree that non-invasive ventilation and particularly BiPAP rather than CPAP is something you want to try before going to intubation. We all know that intubation is something we don't want to do in asthmatics. It's a problem getting the air out, not getting the air in. And they go through some of the things that we want to make sure we do. We want to make sure that we create a respiratory rate, a slower respiratory rate with a longer expiratory time in terms of your vent settings to help mimic what they were doing. And to always beware of barotrauma from pushing that positive pressure ventilation into already inflated lungs which creates a problem not only with the barotrauma risk, but also with preload as well. So great review, really enjoyed it. Thanks you guys for, for doing this. And I think a lot of the things that are in here is the same stuff we're doing in adult asthma, but it's a good reminder that those lessons that you know about adult asthma can be brought to the bedside for that really bad pediatric asthmatic patient, which we don't see nearly as much as we used to because of the medications that we have that can really keep kids out of trouble, but you have to be ready when those patients come in. 
And I think that this is a good segment to really remind us of all of that. Rural medicine talks. And Jan, speaking of taking care of little kids, our rural medicine segment was on just exactly that. Oh my gosh, this one was great. So Dr. Vanessa Cardi talked with Aisha Khatib this month, who was on a flight to Uganda when the all-too-familiar Is There a Doctor on Board came overhead. So of course, Dr. Khatib responds to the emergency, and in the back, there's a woman delivering a baby in the back of the plane. And this woman is mid-delivery, so she steps in, gets involved. She's a family practitioner, has emergency medicine experience. Baby comes out immediately, and then she basically walks through what are the things you want to do in this scenario on a plane. Luckily, this baby is crying, and she immediately thinks, I need a clamp. I need scissors. Do I need hot water? Which she decides that she really doesn't need hot water, but you see that all the time on TV. Um, hot so, water and clean towels, Exactly. Jen. She's, like, need. she's like, at first I thought hot water immediately, and then I realized I don't really need hot water. Why do we always <laughs> ask for that? So she says, you know, get an airline blanket. That's a good way to warm the baby. We all know that's really important. What about clamping the cord? What if you didn't have a clamp? She thought brilliantly about a shoestring if you really needed it as a stand-in. Luckily, this plane had an OB kit. There was a nice clamp there. The placenta still needs to be delivered and inspected, and you can ask for a plastic bag to put it in. What about uterine massage and postpartum hemorrhage? She makes an argument for giving oxytocin up front if you have access to it to make sure that you sort of prevent that possible emergency. But she did active uterine massage. And then you want to promote breast, breastfeeding because that will also help with oxytocin production. And then monitoring. Basically, this woman did quite well. She was assessing vitals every 30 minutes. And remember that you want to keep checking on your patient. Is she bleeding a lot? You can give some acetaminophen for uterine cramping. You know, these in-flight medical emergencies really happen. And if you can get a team together, in this case, there was a pediatrician who also responded. And she got a lot of help and felt that that crowdsourcing was really helpful. Things they don't talk about that are important is you want to move the patient to first class with yourself in order to be able to monitor the patient properly. That's the first thing you have to do, Jan. Yes, for I'm sure. going to need two first class seats immediately for the patient and me. <laughs> and the other thing that, that I find is helpful, and I didn't used to do this and, and I felt weird about it, but I, I have a friend who's a pilot who said this is actually really helpful is when I get on board the plane, I do let the flight attendant know that I'm a physician. This is the seat that I'm in because it really relieves their anxiety and panic when these situations happen where they are hunting for a doc. A couple of times when there was an in-flight emergency, they came to me instead of calling overhead, which I think was really helpful. But Jen, most of the time when I do this, I don't get called. So I think that I'm warding off the bad juju by just right up front saying, I'm a physician, I'm in 16C if you need me. It's almost like a guarantee that it's not going to happen. Yeah, isn't that true? Preparation always seems to avoid the emergency. I'll say I have kind of a white cloud for this. Maybe I'm jinxing myself by saying it, but I've only <laughs> had this happen once and it was on a flight coming back from a conference. And on that flight, was Mel, Sanjay, Billy Mallon, and me. We were all there. And of course, I was by the window. So I was like, okay, whoever's close. Sorry, guys, I'm on the Sorry. <laughs> I'll have a martini. These yes. guys are docs. <laughs> well, I just read a story about a, a friend of the show, Lauren Westifer, not in the flight, but in the terminal, there was a cardiac arrest that she helped run a resuscitation, shocked and got the patient back and the patient is doing well. So our skill set is very easily translated to a lot of these circumstances, which is why we end up with such great stories when it comes to planes. Doc Coggins. Our next segment is on managing the patient with a bleeding AV shunt. This was Britt Guest and Nathaniel Coggins talking about a case that they had and how they worked through it. And the particular case that they had was a patient who had quite a bit of bleeding. The patient came in hypotensive, 60 systolic, was tachycardic in the one teens, and they go through the initial management. 
First, let's activate our massive transfusion. Let's get blood back into this patient and platelets and FFP. But then we have to actually stop the bleeding while we are doing that. And we have to remember that AV fistulas are high flow, low pressure systems, which means that most of the time, direct pressure with a single finger or maybe two is going to control bleeding. Now it does take a little bit of patience. You gotta put your fingers on it, hold pressure and no peaking to get that bleeding to stop. Most of the time when patients come in with AV fistula bleeding and they're hypotensive like this, it's because somebody put like a mass of bandages on there, but didn't actually hold proper pressure. So hold proper pressure at the site. If that doesn't work, you can use things like inflating a blood pressure cuff above the systolic, putting on a tourniquet, but we like to avoid those things because sometimes they can mess up the AV fistula, but of course, save the patient's life first, we can salvage the AV fistula later. From there, Britt and Nathaniel get into other options for managing that bleeding, things like hemostatic agents, topical TXA and gel foam, as well as medications like DDAVP and protamine, as well as intravenous or systemic TXA. There's not a great amount of evidence for any of these things, but we're often going to pull them out when we're in such a bleeding circumstance. And then finally, there are mechanical things we can do like throwing in a purse string or what we're gonna talk about in the next segment, which is the woggle technique that Al discusses with us. Woggle baby, woggle baby, woggle baby, woggle. And ultimately, you're often going to need a vascular surgeon to help with repair of that fistula in the OR. We recently had a case of this and the guy, I remember it so clearly, he was so funny. He was, he was like from a nursing home, very funny guy. And he comes in and they had put a tourniquet on and the bandage was over the fistula and he was complaining about how uncomfortable the tourniquet was, which we totally understood. He goes, doc, can you just cut off my arm and then fix it and then just put my arm back on because this is really <laughs> uncomfortable, <laughs> which I thought was so cute. Oh, I wish that would work. Unfortunately, it's really hard to reattach. <laughs> a woggle, baby, woggle, woggle. All right, Jan, let's get into that woggle technique. We kind of alluded to this a couple of times, but let's hear it. All right, the woggle technique. Of course, Al, he always shares these wonderful pearls with us, and this is just another one of them. And besides the dialysis emergency that we just talked about, the kind of primary scenario for this is that central line that you put in and you've got this persistent ooze that's kind of just continuing to come out and you can put pressure on it, but it often just keeps going and you could put a stitch in it, but it often keeps going. And so this one is a technique that he heard about from an interventional radiologist. And in this case, what you do is you throw in a suture through that skin underneath the line, and then you pull the two ends of the suture out. And you're not going to put in a knot because the issue is that often that knot is really difficult to undo later, to clip out, etc. So you throw a suture through the skin underneath the line, pull the ends up on both sides, cut the needle off, you twist those little two loose strings together to make one string, and then you get a stopcock and you slide that one string through the stopcock, cinch the stopcock down against the skin, and then you turn the lever so it's facing the side port, and that kind of cinches it down. And now you've got this nice pressure that's going on to the bleeding site, and you leave it there for, you know, 15 to 30 minutes, go back, rotate the lever, reverse everything, take a look. If the bleeding stopped, then you can just pull that thing out. And if it's still oozing, rotate that lever and just cinch it back down again. Now, I know that by describing this, you're thinking, I don't really get it. I encourage you to look at the video that Al made. You will get it once you see the video. Yeah, that video is great. And it's a nice thing to have on shift when you want to try this, which is exactly what we did in a situation that came up about a week after I heard about this technique from Al. And it worked really well. We reviewed the video, went to the bedside, did the procedure, reviewed the video again to make sure we had done it correctly. We watched it with the nurse because one of the things Al points out is that you don't need a physician to do this or to observe and see if the bleeding has stopped. So it's really nice to empower the rest of your team to be comfortable with this approach. 
And the nice thing about this, Jan, is it does remove a little bit of the patience that you have to have when holding pressure. Because we know we should be there for 15 minutes, but 15 minutes is a long time in emergency medicine time. And I don't always have 15 minutes to sit at the bedside, but this kind of takes the place of my finger, which may be really helpful. Now, this isn't obviously for the patient who's bleeding out, exsanguinating. You're not going to just put that and walk away. This is really for that oozing that just continues and you just can't get it to stop. What a great technique. And, and Al is full of these little pearls. I can't wait to hear the next one of them. Dr. Susie Demeester. Our next segment was on ST elevations that are not ACS with Susie Demeester. And this really sprang out of a case that one of her colleagues had, a 38-year-old ultra marathoner who finished their marathon and immediately afterwards had a syncopal event. Always worrisome when someone exerting themselves has a syncopal event, but to complicate this one even further, when the patient came to, they had left-sided weakness and a left facial droop and a rightward gaze, and immediately a stroke code was activated when this patient came in. But while the patient's being shuffled off to CT, an EKG is done, and the EKG shows ST elevations. So now they're trying to figure out, why does this patient have ST elevations and stroke-like symptoms? Of course, dissection pops right to mind, and so they did look for that dissection, but the patient didn't have one. The troponins were mildly elevated, and what came up is, could this be Takotsubo's? That's another cause of ST elevations that can cause all these different things. And it really pushed Susie to go down that route of what are all of the different things that we have to worry about in ST elevation that are not ACS? So of course, she talks initially about dissection. Anytime the patient has chest pain with ST elevations and neuro symptoms, we should always be thinking dissection first, get the angio to rule that out because that is the immediate life threat. But then there's a host of other things that can cause this, including hyperkalemia. Pulmonary embolism, myopericarditis, vasospasm, LVH, WPW, sodium channelopathies, global myocardial ischemia, intracranial pathology, which is what they kind of circled back to a couple of times as the possibility for this patient, and LV aneurysms and things like Takotsubo's. So there really is a long list that we have to consider when we see ST elevations. And I think the take home for me, Jan, is we can't just focus on the ST elevations. Go to the patient and find out what symptoms they're having. Is this consistent with an ACS presentation or is it one of those many other things that could be involved? Yeah, I think, you know, when we focus in on the EKG, which we really need to do to really get sophisticated with our interpretation, sometimes we get a little short-sighted about the patient and the clinical story. You know, just like if someone had really concerning symptoms, but an EKG that didn't show an obvious STEMI, we'd be very worried about that patient. On the other hand, when you have a patient whose symptoms are a little atypical and you're not really sure it's what's going on, you know, don't jump on the STEMI bandwagon so fast, step back and think about what are the other things this could be, which this case exemplifies. Crikey. Next up was Cedric Dark talking to Dr. Justin Hensley. And this is, this is another segment in our series on world travelers and a look at all of the different health policy and health systems in the world, this time focusing on good old Australia. I can't do a good Australian accent or else I do this whole summary in Australian accent, but um, <laughs> it would just be embarrassing. So I won't. Let's put another shrimp on the barbie. Let's not. Australia has a very similar system to Canada, for example. It's a single payer system where patients generally have free public hospital care and a substantial portion of doctors' fees and pharmaceuticals are all covered. And interestingly, they don't just cover Australian citizens. They also cover permanent visa holders. Now, their system is financed by the federal government, but the federal government actually has a more limited role in healthcare delivery. It is the states who own and manage the service delivery, 
for public hospitals and ambulance services, et cetera. And the local governments really take care of immunizations and all those sort of public health measures. Now, in Australia, they spend about 10% of their GDP on healthcare versus our astronomical 17%. And two thirds of that is paid by public dollars. Now, they have workforce shortages there. So they get a lot of service from internationally trained physicians, such as Dr. Hensley, who is telling us about his experience down there. They go through things like reimbursement, which is much smoother there. They talk about they have more interoperability of health records, which isn't perfect, but better than what we have. They talk a little bit about a country that doesn't have MTALA and so what that looks like in a country like Australia. And then the all too familiar formulary, which may limit the drugs that you can prescribe, but sometimes just makes it simpler for you to figure out what it is that you can give and how much the copay will be for the patient. So another really good segment on reviewing, you know, what does another healthcare system in this world look like? And this kind of completes our our tour of the different systems. Obviously, we haven't hit all countries, but we've hit all of the really different systems around the world, comparing and contrasting them to the US. Of course, if people have requests, Cedric is happy to take those. There's a specific kind of approach to healthcare provision that you want us to highlight. Just send those in. We'll send them over to Cedric and we'll get it taken care of. But this one was really fun because Justin has just been in Australia for a couple of months now and really hearing how he compares and contrasts the systems where he has been a US emergency physician for quite a while is really nice. And we haven't had Justin on the program in a long time. It goes all the way back to us chatting about Lyme disease a couple of years back. So it's always good to hear Justin's voice. Skylar Lentz, you're clear for takeoff. And our last segment of the month, Jan, was on HLH, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. That's a mouthful. A real, mouth, oh, <laughs> real mouthful. Practice that one for a long time. And I think one of the, the problems with HLH is that we don't really see it very often. But it's important for us to know about because the mortality rate is really high. We're talking about the 20 to 80% range mortality. And much of why we don't see it is because we're not looking for it. And it can mimic a lot of other things that we see like sepsis and acute liver failure and DIC. And it often presents just with a flu-like syndrome, which we're still in COVID times, Jan. So that's a lot of the patients that we're seeing. And so what we've got here is Britt Long and Skylar Lentz getting into how this presents, how we can tease it apart from some of the other presentations we see that are so similar understanding that many of the symptoms we're going to see in other things. So fever is really common, but fever is really common in the emergency department. If you're doing a good abdominal examination, you might pick up splenomegaly or hepatomegaly, but we don't always pick those things up. And so what I kind of circle back to that they talked about is often what you end up with is a sick patient in front of you, you get a bunch of blood work, and then you see all of these abnormalities in the blood work, and you kind of have to bring them all together and say, well, what could cause all of these varied abnormalities? And fortunately, we do have a bit of a scoring system that we can plug this into that can help us to say, oh, I didn't think about it, but this could be HLH. So I think the most important thing that I took away from this is to have it in the back of your mind when you have a sick patient and you can't quite figure out what's going on and all of your labs are coming back with red arrows in all different directions. That is something to think about that maybe this could be HLH. Use this diagnostic tool, which of course we will have in the show notes for you to help to push towards that diagnosis. And then as far as treatment, most of the time this is going to be done in the ICU, but corticosteroids are the foundation of therapy that we can usually start. And then a lot of the other medications are things that you're going to have to hope that your pharmacy has, or you're going to wait for your ICU to get those drugs, these IL-1 antagonists and JAK inhibitors that we just don't use very much in the emergency department. All right. So if you're like me, you heard the segment, you're like, 
I have never made this diagnosis. I don't even know if I knew this existed. I've never even thought of HLH. Um, so there's that. So now you know, like me, now you know, and you can think about it. And of course, you know, you're going to have the MRAP scope, which means that all of a sudden on your next shift, you're probably going to see someone <laughs> and you're going to be like, is this HLH? Am I finally seeing it? We'll see. And all you do is just put it in your differential. Patient could have HLH and you're going to look super smart to that critical care doc when they're looking at that patient. Go, oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't think about that. That's a possibility. I'm going to look into it. And often that's what happens, Jen, is this diagnosis is not made by us, but we can kind of start pushing in that direction if we think it's a possibility. Yeah. Your hematologist will give you an award for sure. You're going to be <laughs> smartest doc in the hospital of the year award. All right, Jen. And that is all of the segments for the month that wraps up our mega summary and brings us to the close of August, another great month of MRAP segments in the bag. I hope that everybody learned as much from this as I did, not just the HLH segment, but that woggle technique too. There were some other really great pearls in here. So I hope everybody took as much away from it as you and I did, Jan. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope everyone enjoys what's left of your summer. Get out there and enjoy. We can't wait to see you next month. And until next month, don't forget to keep doing what you do because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. So it's a fluid-filled sac, and it's lined with synovial cells, and you find it along any pointy spots in your body. So this is concerning. This is a headache that is significantly different from your prior headaches, and it sounds like it is basically debilitating. Practically, what that meant in our case is that in our data set, most hospitals had between 20 and 50 cases per year that they found with kids with Bell's palsy. He described intermittent abdominal pain in the upper quadrants, some quote-unquote uncomfortableness, and lots of gurgling in my tummy and sloshing sounds. Hey, M-Rappers, it's August, and that means it's Monozygotic Split Appreciation Month. You're kidding. No, which is why the annual Twins Day Festival in Twinsburg, Ohio, is held every year in the beginning of August. Yeah, like the August 5th through 7th. Yeah, that's the beginning of August. I wasn't arguing, I was just Twins saying. Day, twin events include the Double Take Parade, Twins Talent Shows, Twin Cornhole, and Twingo. Twingo? What's Twingo? Yeah. It's like bingo, but with twins. You mean they print two sets of bingo twingo. cards? What? No, everyone gets their own cards. Anyway, Twingo! Wait, I don't get it. What if somebody uh, gets There's going to be live music, twin food, and twin photo contests. Hey, didn't I take your picture already? No, that was my brother. Uh -huh. It's going to be twice as good as any other festival. Are triplets invited? Shut up. There's also That's twin so volleyball, rude. twin fireworks. That's so rude. I don't understand what And there are also research opportunities where researchers can give you swag bags for participating in their research studies. So if you let scientists experiment on you, they give you toys? What are you talking about, man? Watch, you said research opportunities. That's, so that's what? like experiments and stuff. Ugh, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. You're ruining the promo for this festival. Do you even you read anything about it? Just you didn't even read anything about oh. it. They don't need to read anything about it. It happens every year. Same this thing entire happens. festival just so they can get twins no. and put them in a scientific experiment. No, shut up. Shut up. You're ruining it. No, just, no, just, no this go for this. Shut up. People to go no. to this. Shut Ow. up. Ow. Ow. Get off Ow. me. Ow. Happy slap. Happy August.